I was a racketeer. It may seem odd for me, a former history professor, to adopt such a comparison. Truthfulness compels me to. I spent 22 years in academia, the first six as a student and a graduate student, and the next 16 as a professor. I taught as an adjunct at two private colleges for one year, and then taught full-time for 15 years at a state community college, and during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class propagandist for the state, the textbook companies, and for the banksters who finance student loans. In short, I was a racketeer for academia, and I knew that's what I was for most of my time inside the educational industrial complex. Academia is a racket. It always has been. It is by no means the oldest, but it is one of the most profitable, surely the most insidious. It is the only one that conceals itself behind the masquerade of quote-unquote education. It is one of the few in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in mines. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few, at the expense of the very many. Out of academia, a few people make huge fortunes, while many pay the bills. Howdy, everybody. Welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. This is CJ, your humble hazardous history helmsman, guerrilla scholar warrior, and cowboy in the jungle. And for this one, I have something a bit unusual to share with you. It is my first Silver Bullet episode in six months. The last time I made a Silver Bullet episode, meaning an episode recorded while driving in my car, was all the way back in August of 2022, and it was called The Last Commute. And it was recorded when I was driving home from my final day at work, cleaning out all my stuff, getting my last paycheck, etc. And that episode is now available only as a special episode for show supporters. Behind the paywall in Patreon and Subscribestar. But as I'll explain later when I turn it over to myself several days ago in the car... I decided to make a Silver Bullet episode going through some of my biggest complaints about academia, based on my observations and experience from counting my time as both a student and professor 22 years in academia. And what I thought I might be able to complete in an hour to an hour and a half of driving quickly, a mission creeped its way into being multiple hours, and so I actually recorded this in multiple segments driving from my home to and from and around uh, Palatka, and then also a day later I drove to and from Ormond Beach, 
And so this is all spliced together into the largest Silver Bullet episode I ever did. So in this somewhat freewheeling, mostly off-the-cuff Silver Bullet episode, I'm going to go through 13 of the biggest gripes I have against academia, at least that occurred to me in the several days leading up to when I recorded this. And these are going to be, you know, in no particular order. And neither do I believe or intend that this list is exhaustive. This is just 13 of the ones that sort of popped into my head when I sat down to sort of think about it. And I will just say that I left out two big complaints I would have that are perhaps the two lowest hanging fruit in critiquing academia as it exists today. And the reason I left these out is because these are ones that lots of people talk about, not just me. People who have been inside of academia, who are currently out inside of academia, as well as people who have never even really worked in academia, but are just astute observers and investigators from outside. And those two super low-hanging fruit that I decided not to get into for the sake of time, especially given the fact of how big this episode ultimately uh, ended up being, are number one, the wokeista takeover of academia, particularly in the last decade or so. That's something that I think most people who are at all paying attention to current events are fully aware of by this point. And then the other one that's been, I think, obvious for even longer than the wokeism takeover of academia is the exorbitant price increases over the last several generations in college tuitions and the way in which, and anyone who's even reasonably familiar with good basic economics can understand this one. The number one factor, some of the stuff I'm going to mention in this episode is are also factors driving up the costs, but for sure, the number one factor in driving up the cost of quote-unquote higher education so much in recent generations is the fact that the government has essentially subsidized student loans, made them artificially easy to get, and low interest rates, and this then you know, means that there's more money ultimately being funneled into college tuition, which, you know, when you do that with anything, it drives the price up. It bids the price up. That's just basic economics 101. If tomorrow the government said every single American citizen adult uh, gets $15,000 to put towards buying a new car, well, if they did that, the price of cars isn't just going to stay the same. It's going to be bid up because suddenly everyone's got way more dollars in their pocket to potentially devote towards buying a car. And so it's going to bid up the prices of the cars that exist and the cars that are going to be made in the, in the future. So anyway, I left those two alone for this episode and focused on ones that, you know, may or may not be as obvious to people who have not worked inside the beast. But before I turn it over to myself from several days ago, driving around in my silver bullet, my super sexy uh, 2014 Hyundai Accent hatchback, I've got some awesome individuals still to thank, a handful left from contributing to my Indiegogo campaign who threw in $25 or more, and if they did, one of the things they get is a shout-out on the show. So here we are six months, a bit over six months actually, from when I started the Indiegogo campaign, and I need to give special thanks to the following awesome individuals. And again, I just go by, you know, the name you put in for your contribution. So, huge thanks go to Darren Austin, Third Gun. Siegfried Frisch, Austin Biggs, Christian Horan, or Haran, not sure how to pronounce it, Michael Separ, Craig Meridian, Todd Gutshow, 
Steve Dew, Josh Tucker, Spencer Curtin, or Curtin, not sure how to pronounce it, and Ricky LeBlanc. Thank you all very, very much for chipping into the Indiegogo campaign. And by the way, the Indiegogo campaign is still live. Since it met and exceeded its goal by my original deadline, it gets to keep going, um, I think, until a year after it was begun. I'm not even sure at this point, but it's still there, and you still will get whatever perks you're entitled to if you contribute there, including if you make a very generous contribution. You can even commission your own DHP episode or even mini-series from me. So, if you would like to take advantage of that, please follow the link in the show notes. And in addition to that, you know, I'm still driving around my 2014 Hyundai Accent silver hatchback that I purchased way back near the beginning of when I started the Dangerous History podcast. I think I had only been doing the podcast for a month or two when I got this car. And I'm still driving it around. It is battered and, you know, scratched up. It has over 160,000 miles. But as of right now, knock on wood, the damn thing still works. But it's not the greatest, and I certainly wouldn't trust it to get me across, you know, a massive road trip. You know, it still cranks up fine, still gets me around town, whatever, still works for, you know, relatively modest road trips. But, you know, any car, no matter how well-maintained, that's that old and that many miles, you don't want to take a chance on driving across the country with it or something like that. And so I mention that only to say that you know, I still have and drive that car, A, because I tend to be frugal with cars and do my best to maintain them well so that I can squeeze all the miles I can out of them, but also just because I haven't had the spare dough to throw down a down payment and start making, you know, monthly payments on a newer car, uh, especially because about a year ago, just under a year ago, my wife's car basically crapped out. And so we had to throw a down payment to get her a newer car and we're making payments on that. And uh, yeah, and I'm still making payments on things like the hospital bills for my dog bite. So anyway, long story short, I could not afford um, to get a new ER vehicle right now. Um, but of course, if lots of people signed up for Patreon, subscribe star, chipped in via Indiegogo, PayPal, whatever else, maybe I could. And so you may be saying, well, CJ, why would I want to help you buy a newer car? Well, aside from just the fact that maybe you like me and you appreciate all the good content that I put out. One of the things that I've been thinking about doing since even before I quit my day job that I've been thinking about doing actually for quite a while, if I ever left the day job, is a DIY DHP tour or possibly even a couple of different tours across vast swaths of the country and doing things like events and meetups and so forth along the way whenever there's, you know, a city or town where there are enough DHP fans to make it worth doing. And I'm inspired to do this, and my sort of model of doing this is what Brett Vanat of School Sucks Podcast did several years back, um, back, you know, even before COVID hit and back before he retired the School Sucks Podcast, he did what he called School Sucks Across America. And um, if I remember right, I think he went from Pittsburgh all the way across the country to the Pacific Coast, I believe, California, and then, you know, a different route back or whatever, and did events and meetups and stuff along the way uh, for fans of his podcast. And I would love to do something like that, maybe even do a couple different versions, maybe, let's say, do one 
um, from Florida up along the eastern U.S. up to New England, at least as far as New Hampshire, and back, and then maybe also do one from Florida west to the Pacific Coast and back. And I would love to do that, especially if I could figure out if there's, you know, enough good places along the way where people would want to come meet me and hang out or whatever. And one of the things that has prevented me from doing that in the six months since I quit my job is not having the extra funds ever since I did that. And as part of that, not having the extra funds to maybe upgrade to a somewhat more trustworthy car as far as something that I'd be willing to throw the dice on driving from Florida up to New Hampshire or Maine and back, or driving from Florida to California and back. So anyway, I know it's not a super common problem these days, but if you happen to have a big pile of extra money laying around that you don't know what to do with, and you're a fan of mine and want to help me out and want to maybe enable me to be able to do these DIY DHP tours, maybe you'll consider throwing some extra Federal Reserve bucks my way uh, before it is hyperinflated to the status of toilet paper. Just throwing that out there. But anyway, I'm going to stop jabbering now and turn it over to myself jabbering in the car several days ago. So, please join me in the silver bullet to talk about 13 of the ways that, in my opinion, academia is a racket. Greetings and salutations, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. It is I, CJ, and as you no doubt heard in the intro and may have seen in the show notes, and might have been able to tell anyway, just based on the audio quality, I am in the car. Yes, I am in the silver bullet, my tired, but still as of now, knock on wood, working 2014. Silver Hyundai Accent Hatchback, which now has a little bit over 160,000 miles on it, thanks to the fact that I was doing the long commute five days a week when school was in session for most of the time that I had this car up until six months ago. And I am actually driving to Palatka, where I worked for 15 years. Now, you may be wondering, what the hell are you doing driving to Palatka in February, six months, almost exactly six months, I believe, from when you resigned from that job back last August. Well, I am driving to Palatka for the first time in the six months since I quit my teaching job in August of 2022, primarily because it is a glorious North Florida winter day. And those of you who've spent time in North Florida in the winter, you know, the weather fluctuates wildly here this time of year. Like, you can get five, six, seven seasons in the span of a few days sometimes. But, you know, those days where it's pretty cold, but not too freezing cold, but it's super sunny, and the sky is just this gorgeous, 
I don't know, baby blue, robin's egg blue, something like that. There's not a cloud in the sky. It's very sunny. It's the pleasant kind of cold. It's not bitter. It's not crazy windy. It's not damp, cold. It's just nice. And I decided to make a little day trip to Palatka. And my primary reason is to hike in Ravine Gardens State Park, which is one of the few things about Palatka that I genuinely miss. So Ravine Gardens State Park is a really cool state park that is, as the name would suggest, sited on a ravine, which ravines are not common in Florida. So it's one of those relatively rare places you can go to hike in Florida and get a little bit of steepness, a little bit of incline and decline. And it's a very nice, pretty state park. And it's kind of in the middle of the town of Palatka, which is not the greatest town, to be brutally honest. But it's a little kind of hidden gem. And I was inspired to do this because just over the past, I don't know, a few days or a week or whatever, I've been getting in my Facebook feed memories from years gone by of my hikes in Ravine Gardens on days just like today, these beautiful bluebird North Florida winter days. And so that kind of planted a seed. And I have to say, that's one of the things I like about Facebook, which, you know, is not a very long list. But one of the things I do appreciate about Facebook is those memories where it, you know, pops up a post you did on the exact same day a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, whatever it is. I actually do appreciate that. I appreciate the serendipity of every now and then, you know, being reminded of something cool that happened on this day several years ago or whatever. And I'd say over the past week, I've had a couple of Facebook memories pop up of my hikes in Ravine Gardens over the years, because it was a common place for me to hike when I was working in Palatka. I would often, it was sort of on my drive home, because from the college to, you know, head to where I live, basically I had to drive across the majority of the town of Palatka. And so it was barely a detour at all to go stop off in Ravine Gardens State Park. I always have an annual Florida Park Pass for the state parks, because I think Florida State Parks are really good. And they are my anarchist deviation. The last government agency I would want to get rid of, I believe, is the Florida State Park System. And maybe park systems in general. But that said, I'd, I'd happily pay, you know, if we lived in Anarchotopia, I'd happily pay double what I currently pay for my Florida annual state, state park annual pass. You know, if it was a private, for-profit thing that had no state subsidies. But regardless, I, I think they do a very good job with it, and Ravine Garden is a really cool one. So anyway, long story short, that's what I'm doing, and it's very weird and very eerie for the first time driving to Palatka in six months after driving to and from Palatka five days a week for 15 years. I sort of feel like, I don't know, somebody coming home from college for the first time, especially if they went somewhere far away from where they lived for college and, you know, didn't come back for Christmas break and only came back you know, at the end of the academic year. And I did come back for Christmas break and things like that and Thanksgiving during my freshman year of college. But even then, I, I still remember the first few times I came home for a weekend or whatever after being away at college. I had this weird, surreal kind of feeling like I had gone back in time or to a lost world when I was 
driving around my hometown and looking at, you know, all the places I used to go and whatever. So anyway, this is going to be a throwback. I decided, you know what, since I'm inspired to go make a little day trip over to Palatka to hit Ravine Garden State Park, have a nice hike, enjoy this glorious weather, because who knows how many more months we'll still be getting days like this for, that this would also be a good opportunity for me to do something that I've been thinking about and intending to do for many months at this point, and some of you may have heard me mention it in various places, which is an episode all about my top gripes or complaints or problems with academia. Since I'm journeying back to the place where I worked in academia for 15 years. And for those of you who are maybe new to the show, I know, you know, I've been making appearances on a couple of big podcasts lately. The Survival Podcast, Tom Woods, um, probably, almost undoubtedly, the two biggest shows I've ever appeared on as of this recording. And those are both shows I've appeared on previously multiple times over the years, but those are pretty big shows that are always picking up large amounts of new listeners all the time. And so, you know, if you go on a show like Tom Woods or Survival Podcast once, you'll pick up a bunch of listeners for your podcast or whatever it is you're doing. But if you go back on in another year or two or three, you're going to get a whole bunch more because those shows have picked up new audience members in the meantime. So anyway, if you're a new listener, first off, I would urge you to go binge through my back catalog because I've been doing this show this podcast for about eight and a half years and have covered a lot of interesting stuff. At least I think it's interesting and so do my listeners. But beyond that, I will tell you that I was in academia for 22 years. I was a student in academia for six years, getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history. And then I taught in academia for for 16 years. I taught for one year, my first year out of graduate school, I taught as an adjunct at two colleges simultaneously. And then I spent 15 years teaching college history full-time at a small state college in Palatka in North Florida. So I've got a pretty good understanding of academia from the inside out. And I always had problems and criticisms with it. And these are problems and criticisms that I would call structural and or systemic. And some of these are fairly recent developments. Some of them are issues I have with academia that you can trace back to the earliest days of academia as we know it in the United States. Really, the time period covered by the academic career of Woodrow Wilson uh, coincides with, and he is a big kind of emblem of it, but he's by no means, you know, the the kingpin or the ringleader, these were big developments and trends that would have happened with or without him. He just happened to be, you know, part of it. And so these are not particular gripes about history specifically, although obviously that's where most of my detailed experience comes from. And these are not at all intended to be gripes specific to the college that I taught at for 15 years, because frankly, my view was that a lot of the things I'm going to talk about here were less pronounced of problems where I was teaching and are actually much worse if you're at the larger and or fancier colleges and universities. So I decided to do this as a silver bullet episode because, well, not only because of the kind of appropriateness of talking about this stuff as I'm going back to where I taught for 15 years for the first time 
uh, in six months, but also because I realized I was getting kind of sandbagged by perfectionism in working on thoughts and notes for this episode. I kept, you know, coming up with new problems. I kept coming up with different ways to express each issue. I kept coming up with different examples and anecdotes and things that I wanted uh, to mention to illustrate the problems that I'm going to be talking about. And I realized that too many months had gone by in my thinking and planning for this episode and that I was getting really, really sabotaged by perfectionism, which I've heard described as, at least when it's out of control, that it's procrastination masquerading as quality control. And back when I used to do these Silver Bullet episodes a little bit more often in the earlier days of the podcast, my preference for these sorts of episodes was to have them for ones where I didn't need a huge amount of detailed notes, because obviously you don't want to be constantly looking at and reading from, you know, a giant script or outline as you're driving your car, you know, 70 miles an hour down winding country roads. So I would typically do a silver bullet episode when I didn't need a whole lot in the way of notes, and I would just have like an index card or a sheet of paper with some basic bullet points and things like that to keep me on track. And in particular, I would sometimes do a silver bullet episode in a situation like this, where it was an episode that I was thinking about that didn't necessarily need a ton of detailed notes. One that would work and might even work best as a somewhat off-the-cuff kind of uh, episode, and where I felt like I was being somewhat sabotaged by perfectionism, and I needed to just sort of jump out the window and build my parachute on the way down. Because I've found that sometimes when it's something that's a little bit more stream of consciousness, that you want to sound a bit more organic and off-the-cuff, it can be helpful to talk it out while you're doing something else, because that distracts the overly active, critical, conscious part of your mind and allows the creative part to go a little more freely. This is why, you know, I've heard some people do a podcast while they're walking around somewhere. And, you know, a lot of philosophers, including some of the original Greek philosophers, believe that walking around with people was often the best setting in which to have philosophical conversations. So by driving while I'm talking, I'm going a little bit more stream of consciousness and hopefully removing some of the overly analytical parts of my brain, which might sabotage me from getting this done by being procrastination masquerading as quality control. Will I knock out all that I have to say on just the trip there? Maybe, but I think probably not. I think I'll probably have to pick it back up as I'm driving home uh, in a few hours, so we'll see. But regardless, I'm going to go ahead and get into it. And I just want to say, it really does strike me that this is sort of like history rhyming. That here I am, you know, the last time I drove to and from Palatka was when I was recording The Last Commute, which is now a special available only to supporters of the show. 
on Patreon and Subscribestar. But I recorded that on my last drive home after clearing out the last shit from my office and classroom and, you know, taking care of my last few things to wrap up with HR and getting my last paycheck. And so to revisit, now that I've been outside academia for six months, to revisit some of my problems. And some of the things I'm going to raise here are probably things you've heard me talk about and or things that you're aware of or that you've thought about. But hopefully some of them will be things that haven't occurred to you and, um, you know, will give you something to think about and help you to understand things you didn't before. And by the way, these are not in any particular order. These are not rank ordered or anything like that. These are just kind of jotted down in a random order. So, you know, I probably couldn't ever rank order these because as soon as I think, oh, that's the worst one, then I think of another one and go, well, maybe that's the worst one. So anyway, and um, a few other things I want to say. Uh, one is that I'm not really going to get into the whole wokeism thing because that's a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, you could trace its roots back, obviously, for quite a while. But in terms of wokeism just really taking over in the way it has, that's a relatively recent phenomenon um, that maybe in its fully-fledged form goes back less than a decade. I mean, you could argue about that, but whatever. So I'm not even really going to talk about that. Plus, I've talked about that to death, I think, um, in other contexts. Maybe not to death. I know I am going to revisit some of the some of that stuff. But I hope that in some way, what I give you here is sort of like a Smedley Butler of academia kind of a thing. So, my 13 biggest problems with academia overall. The first one is, there's no real market feedback mechanism. Now, here's what I mean by that. Who's really the customer? Is it the students? The students pay tuition, but they're not ultimately in control to a full extent of what services they opt for. Basically, a lot of the classes that they have to take, yeah, it's voluntary that they went to that school and are pursuing whatever degree, but in terms of the specifics, a significant amount of the classes that someone will take in pursuit of a degree are not voluntarily selected by the student, at least not fully. You know, maybe it's like, oh, pick two from two classes from this list and two classes from that list, and those are your gen eds. But there's also this weird adversarial relationship, and this will be something I'll talk about more later, where it's like, okay, students are, are paying tuition, but they're being graded and it's not a regular customer relationship. Their kind of rational, cynical incentives are to try and get the credential with as little work and hassle as possible. Whereas the professors, if they're kind of idealistically trying to do a good job, they're trying to teach you as best they can, whatever subject it is, and trying to assess you on your learning and your work in a 
rigorous and honest fashion so that someone who genuinely learns the material better and puts in more effort and produces better work gets a better grade than someone who just, you know, half-asses it or something. And overall, there's not a market feedback mechanism to say, is a particular class providing a good education? Is a particular college or program providing good education? Because, of course, there's no such thing as a single objective definition of good education. Now, this is true of any good or service, really, that there could potentially be different definitions and metrics of what constitutes good. So, you know, what constitutes a good car? Well, there is no one objective answer. Because people have different wants, needs, and preferences as consumers. And so there's a variety of cars, of makes and models, for you to choose from. And then you balance that, you know, your priorities. Um, No one vehicle is going to be good in all potential characteristics of a vehicle. And so you have to figure out the balance of attributes that works best for you that meets your wants and needs and preferences as best you can within whatever budget you have. And so someone who, you know, just wants horsepower is going to make different choices than someone who wants safety and reliability or someone who wants fuel efficiency. Someone who wants an aesthetic, uh, aesthetically appealing car, a beautiful car with a lot of snob appeal is going to make different choices than someone who's kind of more square and doesn't particularly care how their car looks as not as, as long as it's not, you know, ridiculously ugly um, and who, you know, would rather have safety and reliability and gas mileage and things like that, right? So how does a car company know if it's doing a good job providing quote-unquote good cars? Well, they know if they're selling well and making a profit. So Toyota knows it's doing a good job if... People are buying lots of Toyotas. And Ferrari knows it's doing a good job if people are buying lots of Ferraris. Now, what constitutes lots for those two companies is very different. And what constitutes, you know, doing a good job for those types of vehicles are very different. But the point is, consumers, customers, vote with their dollars. And then you have the market feedback mechanism that signals to these companies whether they're doing a good job with their profit relative to their particular customers by the profit and loss mechanism, the market feedback mechanism. And then these businesses can adjust accordingly. They can do more of what seems to get more business and less of what seems to, you know, reduce the business they get. But there's really not a way for colleges to do the same thing. Because the question of what constitutes a good education is possibly even more complicated than the question of what constitutes a good car. And then there's the added problem of, you know, an 18, 19-year-old person doesn't necessarily know what constitutes a good education in any real way. Their whole idea might be, whatever's the easiest, where I can skip class the most, do as little work as possible and still get a decent grade and still knock out, you know, whatever credit it is that I'm trying to knock out with this course and have as much time to, you know, drink and party and whatever as I possibly can. So, you know, who's the customer? Is the customer the college? Is the customer the faculty? Is the customer the student? Is the customer the state who also in in most colleges is also providing a heck of a lot of the funding? And then you've got, you know, the basic mandates and dictates coming from the state 
as well as from the accreditation agency or body or whatever they call it. And so those are interfering with the normal market processes, the normal interactions between the providers of the good or service and the customer that you would find, you know, like how does a restaurant know if it's doing a good job? How does fill in the blank with most private sector uh, industries that are not, you know, ridiculously rigged and cartelized? And so I would say that the fact that there's no market feedback mechanism is kind of like at the root of a lot of the other specific things I'm going to mention as problems. But yeah, there's no rational way to really know if an institution or an individual teacher is doing a good job because there's no market feedback mechanism. Because, you know, you could say, oh, student student reviews. Whether, you know, the ones that the colleges do themselves, the, the questionnaires, or things like ratemyprofessors.com, that's how to tell if a teacher's doing a good job. It's like, well, not necessarily. A professor could be very charismatic and likable and also be super easy on grading and not be really teaching much, but still get great reviews from students. You know, if I just went into class and told funny jokes and stories all day, but didn't really do a lot of teaching of real serious history... But I gave my students all A's, you know, regardless of what they did. I'm sure I would get a lot of great reviews. I might get the occasional weirdo with the conscience who's like, I didn't really learn anything here. And everybody got A's for showing up. But, you know, the vast majority of students would probably be pretty happy with a professor who just comes in, tells jokes for an hour, and then gives everyone an A, and that's it. So, you know, there's this weird feedback mechanism. And, you know, where you see something different is where it's a fully market teaching scenario. Like, for example, something like if you're a martial arts teacher, ultimately, it's in the viewpoint of your students, if you're doing a good job teaching them what they want to know. And each martial arts student is going to have different priorities and criteria in mind. And so that may cause them to choose different martial arts, different martial arts schools, different martial arts teachers, depending on their preferences. And another one would be a music teacher, again, outside of like a conventional school setting music class. But, you know, if I'm teaching somebody guitar lessons and they're just paying me because they want to learn to play guitar and they think that I'm a good uh, person to teach them and they want to learn how to play the stuff that I know how to play and their favorite styles are my favorite styles, then we're a good fit. But if someone's number one priority was to learn like full-on classical guitar, I would not be a good choice for them because I don't know a whole lot of that. I've only dabbled in it a little bit here and there, but I've never really seriously pursued it. But anyway, I hope you get my point that the lack of a market feedback mechanism to let individual teachers as well as entire institutions know whether they're doing a good job because you know what is a good education who gets to decide this leads to as it always does in anything when there's not a good market feedback mechanism at work it leads to all sorts of distortions it leads to all sorts of arbitrary choices being made it leads to surpluses of things that people don't really want or that don't really serve the purposes that people have, and it leads to shortages of things that are the opposite, that are the things that people might want. Number two complaint about conventional academia, over-specialization. 
and this is one that goes back to that origin period, last couple decades or so of the 19th century is when that began with the professionalization of academic disciplines and things like the creation of professional academic associations. Now, part of the reason for the creation of these sorts of things, I understand. I understand that it would be useful to have certain standards in a given intellectual field. Like, for example, to have certain standards of, I don't know, evidentiary expectations in history, certain standards of, like, expectations of source material and what's a reliable source and, you know, how are source materials used and what sources are seen as more trustworthy than others. And also things like, you know, nuts and bolts stuff, such as how do you cite your sources? Like, I can understand that. I can understand that you would want there to be some basic standards of those sorts of things in a given academic discipline. But there's also problems when you start to professionalize, and one of them is specialization. And the overall trend over time, over, say, like the past, I don't know, 140 years, has been for academia to get progressively more and more hyper-specialized as time goes on. So initially you had boundaries being drawn between disciplines that hadn't really been drawn very much and certainly not very rigidly before, such as, you know, drawing lines between history and philosophy and political science and, you know, things like that say, carving up the individual disciplines of the so-called social sciences. And so that creates all kinds of problems. Because very often, you need knowledge of one of these disciplines to fully understand and answer some important question or to make an important point in another discipline. There are lots of instances where to understand a historical problem and address an historical issue, you might really need to know economics, and or psychology, and or philosophy. But if you're hyper-focused on just history, you're going to be not very aware of these other knowledge areas. And this is something that always bothered me when I was in academia, because I was always just an intensely curious, omnivorous reader and listener and consumer of information. And so I did not just want to read history, like specialized history only. I was interested in everything. I was interested in psychology. I was interested in economics. I was interested in philosophy. I was interested in political science. And it just progressed over time and got worse and worse to where now it's not even like professional academics are just, you know, their field broadly defined. Like, oh yeah, I do history, but, you know, I research on and teach on a wide variety of different historical topics. It's like, no, 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 no. You're super specialized. And so now, you know, if you teach at like a big fancy university, like where I was, I was just teaching intro classes. So I was teaching broad survey level classes for the most part, you know, U.S. history part one and two. And so that allowed me to do at least some, you know, broad variety of topics. 
But if you look at people who are like tenured full-time professors at fancier universities, especially, it's not even like, oh yeah, I teach American history and do research on American history. It's like, I do 19th century women's studies. I do Gilded Age politics. I do mid-20th century cultural history. Things like that, or maybe even more specialized. And so the vast majority of full-time professional academics are looking at a tiny sliver of a tiny sliver of their discipline through a soda straw. And the incentives of the institutions are structured uh, at like the larger and fancier universities especially. The incentives are structured such that you're more rewarded you get more jobs, you get more promotions, you get more, you know, prestigious awards and whatever, the more specialized you are. You know, the old cliche, publish or perish, which I didn't have to deal with where I worked, but if you're, you know, a professor at a fancy big university seeking tenure or seeking to, you know, retain your position, it is to your benefit to write and publish books and articles that are very, very specialized. Because that's the nature of the venues that publish those things academically. And so you end up in this situation where the vast majority of full-time professional academics are super specialists. And, you know, I think you need some specialists in academia. If I was to, like, you know, design uh, from the ground up a completely brand new academia, which... I wouldn't want to do because I don't believe in central planning. I believe in emergent order over imposed order. But ideally, I would want an academia in which there were both specialists and generalists of varying degrees. And I think medicine is a good analog here because I think most reasonable people would say that we, when it comes to doctors, we want both. We want there to be super duper specialists that are, you know, the number one expert in one very particular, you know, part of the body or organ system or, you know, one particular type of diseases or whatever like that. Because, yeah, those are going to be the people that are going to do maybe the most cutting edge innovation and research. And those are the people that like, let's say you have a particularly difficult to deal with disease that's somewhat rare well, you know, you want there to be somebody you can go to that, like, that's the guy for that thing, you know, or one particularly difficult uh, surgical operation, right? But at the same time, you want generalists, too. You want general practitioners that someone can go to, you know, with a handful of vague symptoms and has a decent chance of helping them narrow it down to what might be wrong with them. Or, you know, like general purpose ER surgeons that someone can come in with a gunshot, a knife wound, a car wreck, whatever it is, and kind of regardless of what went wrong, the surgeon has a good chance of fixing them. But you also want the guy who's the super specialized, you know, brain tumor surgeon or something like that. They both have functions. But academia, everybody ends up with this crazy tunnel vision and myopia because they only know their little little niche. And, you know, other than the occasional just curious oddball like me who just unrepentantly was trying to constantly read and learn in 
various uh, fields all the time, you know, other than the occasional oddball like me who doesn't fit in academia very easily, it's mostly just a bunch of hyper-specialized people. And, of course, these hyper-specialized people that spent, you know, 10, 20 years only researching and reading and writing and teaching about one pretty narrow little uh, niche topic, they're probably not going to be great teachers either. Because in my experience, at least, generalists tend to make better teachers than specialists in virtually any subject, unless you're specifically trying to learn that one very specific thing, right? Like if you're trying to be the next, you know, super duper expert on one particular um, difficult surgery, like, yeah, maybe you ought to go learn from whoever's the current expert on that particular surgery. But... You know, most people going through medical school would be better off, you know, just learning from widely experienced, widely read and knowledgeable generalists. My third gripe with academia is rigid credentialism. This is another one that drove me nuts and blocked me from certain opportunities that I knew that just based on my knowledge and capability, I was plenty uh, capable of doing. And I do believe that the rigid credentialism is in part um, a main aspect of why academia is a racket, because it means that you've got to go through the process of taking certain classes and therefore paying certain amounts of tuition to get the piece of paper that says you have this degree or whatever, um, regardless of if you already have the knowledge in question. And thereby the institution can make, you know, whatever money off of you pursuing that credential. So it's the credentialism of like a really, really uh, tight guild structure that's gone far beyond anything like uh, quality control and is overwhelmingly about restricting competition by, you know, it's sort of like the old um, uh, cab driver uh, medallions in New York City, right, where there's only a very small, limited number of cab driver medallions that exist. And, of course, the reality is, like, why should you need this ridiculously expensive and hard-to-get certificate to drive a cab? Shouldn't the only uh, formal requirements to be a cab driver be a working car and the ability to drive it? And, like, even if we're going to have state credentials, shouldn't it just be, like, that you have a a good driving record, you know, and like, that's kind of it, right? Because if I can drive my kids around the city safely for free, surely I'm equally capable of driving strangers around the city in return for money, right? Obviously the cab driver medallions have nothing to do with anything other than artificially restricting the number of cab drivers who exist and thereby artificially jacking up the rates that cab drivers are able to charge, right? And obviously Uber, things like that have been the the workaround undermining that stuff in a lot of places. And the rigid credentialism also feeds the over-specialization in a lot of ways. Like, for example, if you want to teach a particular course that's somewhat specific, that's somewhat specialized, and, you know, we need those courses for students who might want to take that particular course, but then there might be some requirement that you have to have a graduate level credit in that very specific field. So I would say that credentialism is 
one of, not the only for sure, but definitely one of the things that kind of uh, incentivizes hyper-specialization. It kind of forces people to stay in their lane and imposes artificial costs on them in many instances if they want to dabble outside of their little narrow specialized lane in any official capacity. So let me just give you two examples that I personally ran into of credentialism creating problems for me. One was in that first year I was teaching college history, I was teaching almost a full-time load, but doing it at two different colleges and as an adjunct. So I was teaching 80% of a full-time load, but I was not making 80% of pay uh, of a full-time teacher at those institutions, and I was getting no benefits whatsoever. And so one of the schools that I was teaching at during that time period was Flagler College in St. Augustine, my alma mater, where I got my bachelor's degree. And this was only, you know, a couple of years after I had graduated from that college. And so, you know, the faculty who were around me, the full-time faculty, these were all the same individuals who had just been my teachers, and, you know, I got on well with pretty much all of them and got great grades, and, you know, so the people who are sort of like my co-workers, but they're above me because they're full-time and whatever, they're the same people that had just given me straight A's and written me letters of recommendations when I was a student there a few years ago, so it was kind of a weird, weird experience, but kind of cool. They, they were, you know, for the most part, great professors. So while I was teaching there full-time, uh, sorry, while I was teaching there part-time, excuse me, um, I was teaching a couple of World Civ classes there, and I was getting uh, great feedback. By all accounts, I was doing a fine job, and the students seemed to like it, and yet at the same time, you know, I was not giving everybody A's just for showing up and whatever. Like, they seemed to genuinely like me as a teacher and seemed to feel like they were you know, interested in class and learning stuff. And a full-time teaching position opened up at the college. Now, I did not yet quite understand how rigid the credentialism in academia is. By the way, those of you who'd never heard me talk about my academic background, I don't have a PhD. I only have a master's degree in history. But at least in history, you don't learn any special new magic by continuing on another several years and getting your PhD. You learn pretty much everything you need to know as far as like knowledge and standards and techniques and things. In a competent master's program in history, you learn everything you need to know by the time you finish that. The main difference with a PhD is like you just hang around longer, you rack up a few more classes, but you don't learn like any new magical uh, techniques to either research or teach or write about history. Um, and then the only other thing you do is you produce a dissertation, which just is a, you know, for a master's level research project, you might do like 50 pages. And for a dissertation, you might do a couple hundred pages. So it's basically like you've, you're just doing a larger version, a longer version of what you probably already did a version of for your master's. And so it's really not uh, a PhD, at least in history. Maybe there's some other fields where you do like learn a new level of esoteric knowledge in between your master's and PhD degree. But in history, you don't learn any new special magical techniques or whatever. It's really just a um, an endurance thing where, you know, you demonstrated that you can slog through producing a couple hundred page dissertation 
that is probably super hyper specialized and that probably a dozen people outside of your dissertation committee will ever read. And, you know, printed copies of your dissertation by an academic press might exist. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they will languish gathering dust on the shelves of a few college libraries. And once a decade, some student who's doing research in your little niche might dig up your book and look at it and cite it. So anyway, I was ignorant and naive and whatever, and I thought, hey, I've got a master's degree. I clearly can teach. And and by the way, at Flagler College, there's no graduate school. So, you know, you're never going to be teaching graduate level classes, although I, I think I fully was capable of, you know, doing that anyway. But even setting that aside, I would never have been asked to teach any graduate level classes. Um, so my thinking was, I'm fully capable of teaching any class, any history class that might need to be taught here. And on top of that, I was a student here and, you know, was a decorated honor student here and was well liked by, you know, the faculty in my department. And now I've been teaching here for a year. And I've demonstrated that I can do a good job at that, too. So, surely, the fact that I don't have a PhD will not be a, you know, complete 100% roadblock to me applying for a full-time teaching position here. After all, it's basically what I'm already doing, but just more of it. And so, I went to talk to the history professor who was sort of like my supervisor as an adjunct, who had also been my advisor there when I was a student. And I went to chat with him and I said, wow, I noticed there's a, uh, there's a full-time job opening up after I've been here, you know, teaching part-time for a year. Isn't that cool? I was thinking of applying and he basically told me flat out, do not bother. You do not have a PhD. And he wasn't being mean about it. He was just, you know, telling me the truth. He was just like, you don't have a PhD. That is a absolute ironclad requirement to even get your application looked at. So you're better off just not even wasting the time. And, you know, he kind of suggested that I look instead at high schools and community colleges. And that wasn't because of him. I'm sure if it was only up to him as an individual, he would have at least been willing to consider me. But the hands of the institution are tied by these rigid credentialist requirements. So I was completely blocked out of applying for a job I know I could have done very well and that I probably would have liked very much because of rigid credentialism. And it seems to me that in most other fields, there's often at least some capability to bend, even if there are credential requirements, there's often some capability to bend those or break those when a person clearly shows that they're capable of doing the job perfectly well. I personally know multiple people who have gotten jobs that, by the official credential requirements of the job, they were not qualified for, but they were able to show that they could do the job somehow or other. But in academia, there's zero potential to do that. It is just rigid. Like, if you don't have these degrees or these credits, 
we won't even look at your application. We won't even consider you. You will just be immediately tossed in the rubbish bin. And then the other example of this that I've mentioned before in various places is uh, when I started teaching Florida history. So many years ago, I started teaching Florida history at St. John's River State College where I was working, and I was enjoying it. It was something different. It was a change of pace from just doing, you know, U.S. and world history over and over again. And I've always been interested in Florida history. So I was having fun. I don't think it was a gen ed requirement course. So that meant that most of the students that were in my class were students who were actually genuinely interested in Florida history too. They were, you know, just taking it as like a elective credit or something. And so it was a great class. It's mostly students that, you know, really were into it. And then, you know, maybe two thirds of the way through the semester, um, I get, I can't remember if it was a phone call or an email from my Dean. I think it was an email. And she was like, you know, we were just looking back through uh, your transcripts and things that we have on file here. And um, we didn't see that you had any Florida history graduate level credits. And I answered back and, and I said, no, no, you're correct. I actually never took a graduate level course in Florida history because I went to the University of Tennessee uh, for grad school. And, you know, they don't teach Florida history classes there. And so, but then I went through and I said, look, I, I took um, upper level undergraduate Florida history course at Flagler College. Um, I'm a member of the Florida Historical Association, which I was at the time, you know, and I, and I just kind of went through like, I know, and I've read tons of books on Florida history and, you know, been to historical sites around the state and blah, 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 kind of, you know, what in a not so rigidly credentialed arena might have given my supervisor the ability to go, okay. Oh, and by the way, I also probably mentioned in there too, I was like, also, I'm, you know, more than halfway through teaching the course. Uh, and seem to have been doing it okay so far. And you can ask the students, I'm sure they'll tell you that they're learning a lot and I'm doing a good job. So, um, but you know, she basically responded back and again, it wasn't on her. It wasn't like she was being, you know, a pain about it or a stickler about it. It was, she had no choice either. Her hands were tied and she's like, well, you know, we're going to kind of let you finish the semester because it wouldn't be fair to those students who paid for the course and are already, you know, most of the way through it. But um, you can't teach the course again for us unless and until you get a graduate level course in Florida history under your belt. And so yet again, right, I'm blocked out of something that I'm clearly fully capable of doing and that I'm actually already doing successfully, but I lack the formal credential. And so, boom, no soup for you. And so imagine how many people are blocked out of doing things in academia that they're fully capable of doing because of some lack of the right little credential. And then this is another way that this is a, you know, cartel system in which competition is being restricted. If you need a difficult, expensive credential to do any, anything, then there's going to be fewer people offering particular courses and things. And so this artificially restricts the number of people who can teach each individual subject or each individual course. And then this in turn is going to artificially uh, pull up the cost of tuition and artificially gouge the students. By the way, there was a happy ending to that Florida history story. Um, my college was willing 
to pay the tuition for me to take a Florida history graduate level course because they wanted me to teach Florida history. It wasn't like they were trying to prevent me. They were just, you know, their hands were tied by the formal rules. And it was difficult because actually I found out um, that graduate level courses in Florida history are rather rare. You'd think like any Florida university would have them, um, but they're actually not very common. And it ultimately took me working out, arranging an individual study, just me as the only student, a course on Florida history with a professor at the University of North Florida. And so it all ended up working out okay. I mean, I had to do, you know, the work, the work of that independent study course, but, you know, I enjoyed it. The professor I was working with was good. And so, you know, it was a little bit of uh, work and hassle and whatever, but... You know, the the most annoying part about all of it was dealing with all the red tape to get me admitted into the University of North Florida so that I could take one course and, you know, not pursue a degree. And just all the paperwork and red tape and whatever, you know, that to take one course, I'm a guy that already has a master's degree. I want to take one course at this university and I've still got to, you know, do an entire full application process and get my transcript sent and fill out all this, these forms. And I think I even had to like send them my vaccination uh, records, you know, that I've been vaccinated for measles and mumps or whatever the hell they were looking for. I mean, the whole thing was kind of silly, but it all ended up, it all ended okay in that um, instance. But anyway, the rigid credentialism and then that credentialism kind of fans out from academia itself into society and more and more jobs, even if they're not academic, start to get credentialist in part just as a sorting mechanism, just as a, well, if you have a bachelor's degree, uh, that shows that you can kind of show up to a place consistent, consistently and, um, you know, do basic mind-numbing tasks and have enough stick to to, you know, knock out the degree after four or five years. And so we're not going to look at any job applications. We're going to use as a heuristic that just to knock out a bunch of applications for a job, even if it's a job that really doesn't require uh, a college degree to be able to do it. The next thing I want to mention, and obviously this is not one that uh, goes back to the late 19th century, Um, but is one of much more recent vintage, and that is too much, or should I say too many, online courses. And this is one that also kind of gets at the problems of no market feedback mechanism and who's really the customer. Because if you just say, well, the student is the customer, and so the customer is always right, well, then by that metric, there should be a zillion online classes, right? And it's true that students want online classes, and in virtually every college today, uh, and for decades going back, online classes are the biggest growth area in terms of classes, growing in you know number of students and everything much, much quicker um, than physical in-person classes. And you might say, well, if that's what students want, if that's what students want, then there should be a lot more of that. But the problem from my perspective is that 
the online classes, in my opinion, will always reduce the quality of education, except in the case of where a student is intrinsically motivated because he or she wants to actually learn about the subject in in question. And in general, where students are going to be more like that, where they're going to be more genuinely intrinsically motivated to learn about the subject is not going to be an intro level, uh, survey level gen ed classes. It's going to be in upper level undergrad classes and in graduate school classes. And so the fact of the matter is, if you're teaching, you know, U.S. history survey course, or you're teaching world history, or you're teaching intro to biology, or whatever it is, online, the vast majority of your students have no intrinsic uh, interest, particularly in your subject. And so their kind of status and relationship is something more along the lines of, what's the minimum amount of effort I can do to get a decent grade and punch out this stupid gen ed credit that I'm forced to take that I don't really want to take. And in my observation and experience, where online classes proliferate the most heavily is precisely where there's more of that, precisely where it's mostly, you know, lower level students punching out gen ed credits. And so there's all kinds of warped incentives in that scenario that make online particularly problematic. So I got to stop briefly and make a quick uh, pit stop and get some gas. So students, hopefully I didn't lose my train of thought too much, pit stopping into the gas station there, but um, students love online classes because of the quote-unquote convenience factor. But the problem is a lot of these students, you know, these 18, 19, 20-year-olds, they don't have the discipline and maturity to be self-motivated and self-disciplined enough to be able to thrive in an online class environment. And so in my observation, most of the time, failure rates are significantly higher in online classes than in face-to-face in-person classes. And it's a case of, you know, the student in this instance very often doesn't know what's best for them. And I know that sounds condescending and paternalist, but I'm sorry, a lot of people don't. But especially when you're in that, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old age range, you know, you think, oh, this is going to be easy and convenient because it's online and either maybe it's an asynchronous online class where you're working at your own pace just within, you know, preset deadlines for for work and things, or if it's a Zoom or something like that, where it's actually like video class sessions, but at least I don't have to, you know, go into school physically. I can do it from home, whatever. And so that's what they think. And they don't realize that statistically online classes are harder if you define hard by, you know, what's the failure rate and um, what are the average grades that students get. Now, the flip side is, so I I would say in most instances, teaching and learning in an online class within the confines of conventional academic classes and all of the other problems that go along with that is um, the, the quality of the teaching and learning is necessarily reduced for most students and for most faculty members.
it tends to become more and more of a conveyor belt type situation, even more so than regular level, you know, intro gen ed classes are. And then the flip side is, if a given instructor has very high failure rates in their online classes, and let's say they're not really making the class any more difficult in objective terms than their face-to-face version of that same class in terms of the material they're covering and, you know, the difficulty level of the assignments and test questions and whatever, and yet they're getting much higher failure rates in online. Well, if you have ridiculously higher failure rates than your colleagues in the same uh, subjects or ridiculously higher failure rates than your colleagues who are doing the same or similar courses online, your administration is going to notice that and is going to, you know, kind of call you out on it and sort of say, like, why is this happening? Whatever. And so very often there's a tendency for instructors in online classes to be incentivized to water down standards so that the failure rates aren't ridiculously high. In addition to that, everything in an online class is more of a headache and a hassle to take care of as an instructor. I can tell you that with absolute certainty. Like, for example, if a student has a question or a problem about, you know, why did I get this score on my last test essay? I thought I did better than that. In a face-to-face class, that can be handled in a few minutes, you know, a few minutes after class or the student comes by during your office hours or whatever, and You know, if you're an instructor who's skilled at dealing with students, you can explain in as calm and not, you know, triggering of a way as possible what the problems were or whatever it is. And it's not real difficult. And most of the time, as long as you do a decent job of explaining things, the student's not really going to push back too much. Whereas if you try to do sort of the same thing in the context of an online student, it's going to mean a ton of emails back and forth with things getting lost in translation. And, you know, just like people uh, who are driving a car tend to be more of assholes to drivers around them than they ever would be if, like, let's say they were walking around a store to the other customers around them because you get that distance and that, you know, at least somewhat anonymity. And so students who only ever interact with you online tend to be much more of assholes and cause much more problems than students that you have to actually see and interact with face-to-face on a regular basis. And so I can tell you, as an online instructor inside baseball, I was incentivized to just minimize hassles so that I'm not dealing with annoying online students' emails all day long, every day. And so I kind of struggled with myself to not water down my standards online too much, but at the same time, I know that I was incentivized to do so by wishing to avoid and minimize excessive hassles that drain my time and energy and sanity. In addition to that, I firmly believe that dishonesty is exponentially higher in online classes than in face-to-face, by which I mean things like cheating and plagiarism. Now, there are technological tools that can be used to reduce these things and try and deter them and try to catch people 
when they do, you know, something dishonest. But these things are always gameable. So, like, for example, there's Turnitin, which checks student papers and things for plagiarism. And it's pretty good. And, you know, it's been around for a few decades and it's been continuously refined. And I think it's pretty effective for what it is in its current version. Um, but it's not perfect. And there still are ways around it. Like, for example, you can hire a person to write you a research paper if you've got the money and the, you know, willingness to do so. And they'll, if they do a good job, turn it in, won't flag it. You know, if they've properly cited their sources and haven't just given you a paper that's fully plagiarized. So there's that, you know, if you've got the money and someone who can write a decent essay is willing to do it for you, there you go. And then, you know, I have no idea how this stuff is even going to work in the age of chat GPT and other uh, AI sort of things as they get more and more effective. Like, how will you ever know if a student's research paper or whatever was actually written by them? And then cheating, same deal. And there are tools like uh, Respondus and Lockdown Browser, you know, that make it so if a student is taking a, an online course, uh, sorry, an online test in one of your courses, like their, their browser is locked down so they can't pull up anything else. And then um, Respondus, where there's a webcam on them while they're taking the test to, you know, make it harder for them to do things like look up something on their phone or what have you. But there's, you know, always this arms race where students are figuring out ways around these things and how to game whatever system there is and whatever. And I just think in general, students are going to be more likely to try things like cheating and plagiarism in an online course versus in a face-to-face course. Obviously, those things still exist in a face-to-face course. I'm just talking about relative uh, rates. They're more likely to try in an online course, and they're also more likely to get away with it in an online course. And if one of the goals of you know, the academic institution is to have standards that students have to meet in order to get these credentials, then obviously by having every year more and more classes go online, it's not just that the kind of idealistic quality of the education is getting watered down. It's also that the credential itself becomes increasingly meaningless because it's increasingly, you know, gameable. Okay, so I'm back in the car. I did my hike. It was a beautiful day. And uh, if I remember, I'll try and share some of the pics I took of the landscape and the foliage and everything, maybe on social media, maybe in the Facebook group for DHP supporters, things like that. And also maybe I'll put a few of them uh, up with the post for this episode too, we'll see. But it was a gorgeous day, and I'm very glad that I came and did this hike today. It was nice. And like I said, it's one of the very few things I miss about working in Palatka is the ability to regularly and conveniently stop off in Ravine Gardens on a nice day and take a walk. By the way, uh, I did my hike in Ravine Gardens for a bit over an hour, and it's some pretty rugged terrain. And I did it with a 45-pound weight plate strapped to my Outdoorsman's Atlas Trainer pack frame system. So, 
Yeah, I wasn't just hiking for a bit over an hour on rugged trails. I was doing it with 45 pounds strapped on my back. And now I'm actually just sort of driving around Palatka a little bit before I make the drive home. And I'm doing that partly as like a nostalgia, you know, back in your hometown driving around kind of thing. And I'm doing it also partly because I don't know if I'll be able to knock out all the rest of the points I wanted to discuss in this episode just on the drive home. So I'm giving myself a little bit of extra time. And right now as I'm recording, I'm driving along the riverfront of the St. John's River. It's probably the nicest part of Palatka. There's some large, nice houses here. And so this is along the riverfront of the St. John's River on the Palatka side of the big bridge and just south of the bridge. And then I'm going to go up through downtown, which Palatka's downtown really does have potential. And there are a few neat stores and restaurants, but overall, it just, it would need more gentrification, really, to make the downtown, you know, one of those thriving little downtowns that quaint, small to mid-sized towns often have, you know, a charming little walkable downtown with some neat little local shops and restaurants. It's, it's got some of that, it's got potential, but it's just not all the way there. And you know, if I had more time today, I might walk along the riverfront or jog along the riverfront because it is such a beautiful day. And the river does look really nice today. So anyway, the next thing I wanted to mention, and this is another one that is of fairly recent vintage, and it's one that I watched over my uh, 16 years of teaching college. I watched it grow and escalate and get more and more in my opinion, uh, excessive, and that is disability accommodations for students. Now, everybody's always scared to talk about this. It's like a third rail, but you know what? I'm not part of a public institution or anything like that, so, you know, I ain't going to get sued. But I'm sorry, in academia, as in many other areas, the whole disability accommodations thing has gotten way out of control, has way overcorrected for reasonable accommodations, and is being gamed and uh, abused by, in this case, students. So, sort of like how they make it way too easy to bring your quote-unquote service animal wherever you want to, and they don't put a whole lot, from what I can tell anyway, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of requirements for that, and people who, you know, run stores and whatever, they're so scared of getting sued, they don't want to ask, like, hey, is that really a disability, dog? What does that thing really do for you, right? Like, when you see the person who clearly can walk fine and clearly is not blind coming into a store, and they're, you know, carrying their toy poodle, and they're like, it's a, it's a disability, dog, or whatever. It's like, no, you know, the people who think they should be able to bring their dog into everywhere uh, because it's an emotional support animal or whatever like that. I get it. Totally makes sense. I'm totally cool with it for a blind person having a seeing eye dog and things like that. You know, the things that obviously the disability accommodations were initially, you know, created for. Like, I don't have a problem when I see a blind guy with his seeing eye dog somewhere. Doesn't bother me, but obviously, in many cases I've seen, the dog is not some specially trained thing that's really 
um, helping a person with their disability. It's just, it's their pet and maybe they're a little bit mentally ill, but that's about it. And if you're, you know, so anxious and fearful that you can't go into Walmart without your toy poodle to keep you emotionally stable, we shouldn't be accommodating that. We shouldn't be enabling your problem. You should be getting treatment so that you are able to walk into Walmart without your toy poodle and be okay. You know, we're enabling your addiction. We're enabling your affliction if we just give you a pass. So anyway, the disability accommodations for students, I watched exponentially explode in real time over just 15, 16 years to where the first few years I was teaching, it was quite rare to get a disability accommodation form for a student. You know, out of 100 to 150 students in my classes per semester, I could easily count on one hand, often with fingers left over, how many students I had disability accommodations for. And in most instances, it was ones that seemed completely reasonable that no reasonable person would have a problem or a question with. So, like, for example, a deaf student would have a sign language interpreter to help them understand class better, you know, if they're not a good lip reader or, you know, they can't always uh, see your lips well enough or whatever like that. And also, you know, so as to act as an interpreter between me and the student, because if the student, you know, can only communicate through signing, well, obviously then I need the interpreter to relay to me what if the student has a question or whatever. Like, that was all, I get it. That's completely reasonable. Or, a, you know, a blind student needs certain accommodations to help them out with the class. Totally get it. Or a student that had some sort of a physical disability, like, you know, some kind of a physical handicap to where their hands didn't work as well as everybody else's, and then they needed certain accommodations for that. All these sorts of things. But then what happened was, over the course of 15, 16 years, it's like every year there would be more students with disability accommodations, and every year a bigger percentage of them were things that I had serious doubts about. And I think what was feeding it was, number one, a generational shift that as you get to the younger, you know, newer generations, the later generations, they're coming up through K-12 through schooling in an environment in which there's an increased tendency to diagnose disabilities left, right, and center. So in a lot of cases, these students, by the time they get to college, they've already been getting disability accommodations, you know, since they were in elementary school. And then also in general, I think college administrations, their number one priority in many situations is simply to avoid potentially getting sued. And so they would rather err on the side of excessively uh, catering to alleged disability accommodations rather than try to be a little bit stricter about it, try not to let people abuse it and game the system, but potentially, you know, get lawsuits and threats of lawsuits more frequently. And so there were a lot of cases where I had to accommodate students and I really got the impression, and not just based on, you know, there, there's nothing visibly wrong with Like, I get there are disabilities where there's nothing obviously visibly wrong with you. But 
to where even from the students' kind of manner and things they've said, I got the impression that there's nothing really wrong with them that a reasonable person would consider an actual disability. And they're just gaming the system in order to get, you know, an easier time of things. So things like, for example, getting huge amounts of extra time uh, on tests and things like that, you know. But where it really started to um, to go beyond me just thinking some people are taking advantage of the system and gaming it to get an easier time in class and to get advantages to where it really started to become a time suck for me. Because, like, let's say, for example, if a student is deaf and has a sign language interpreter and they're in a physical face-to-face class, that really doesn't impose any additional cost or burden or whatever or hassle onto me as the instructor. Not really. I mean, yeah, there's one extra person sitting in class who's acting as a sign language interpreter for one of the students. That doesn't really, you know, impose a whole bunch of additional hassles on me as the instructor. Or, you know, a blind student, I might have to send an exam to the college's test center, which deals with things like students who need special accommodations during exams, and fine. I run a copy of the exam down to the office that does that, and then they work it out with the student. The student schedules a time to take the exam, you know, with whatever they need as far as accommodations to help, for example, um, a blind student take a written exam, you know, which... It would probably just be some sort of a, of a college employee who would sit there and read the test to the student out loud and then note their answers down accordingly. Fine. That, that literally, I mean, you know, it, it cost me a couple minutes to run a copy of the exam to that office across campus or whatever. Like, that's, I, I don't really mind. And by the way, I should say that the students that I had over the years who had, like, clear disabilities that virtually anybody would agree, you know, are reasonable uh, things to accommodate. They always did very well. Like I had several blind students and deaf students and, you know, students with certain physical handicaps and even one or two students with things like Tourette's syndrome. And every single one of them, as far as I can remember, did well. They were good students. And, you know, Oftentimes were, were nice people too, you know, and like clearly they were not trying to get any kind of special or un- unearned advantage. But then there start to come these rules regarding, and a lot of this actually comes from the feds, rules regarding disability accommodations and online classes. And my view is online classes should be considered sort of like, like I said before, I think they're, they're overused, especially for um, lower level students and intro level classes. But to me, online classes should be almost like a, a privilege more so than a right. And so in the same way that if I'm in a wheelchair and I try out for the basketball team, nobody reasonably expects, you know, unless it's like a, a special Olympics, Paralympics sort of a thing, no one reasonably expects that I should have a right to get onto the team if I can't perform you know, the basic physical things for that, right? So it started to get more and more burdensome in making online classes to make sure that they were amenable 
to all the different kinds of potential disability accommodations. And the idea is that the rule is that your online class has to be accessible to like anybody with any disability all the time, even if you never have a student with a particular disability actually in that class in real life. So what I mean by that is every single piece of audiovisual material that's in your online course has to be easily adaptable to, for example, deaf and blind students. So, for example, if I embed a video for students to watch, I have to make sure that it has captions, and those captions are accurate. Now, that's, you know, often if you're getting videos from an academic database type place, they'll already have that stuff. But if you're getting it off of random places online or something like that, or it's, you know, an old uh, uh, video from somewhere that you're embedding, there might not be captions. And if I've got written material or visual material, I have to make sure it is adaptable to screen reader software for blind students. And basically, if I have any material, oh, and if, if I make audio podcasts, which I used to do for my students in online classes, as, you know, like lectures for them to listen to, I have to have a transcript there for every single one. Not not like, oh, this semester, holy cow, I happen to have a, a deaf student in my online class. Let's make sure that, you know, things are adapted and accessible. But like, no, it's got to be there even if you teach that online class for 12 years and never have a deaf student once. You still have to have it like fully deaf, adapted or adaptable all the time. And you're not supposed to have any material in your class that is not fully handicapable, by which I mean... If I've got a video embedded that doesn't have captions, then nobody, none of my students should have access to that video. It should not be there. You see what I mean? Or if I have, let's say, visual images like still images, photos or diagrams or whatever, if they don't have um, big, long uh, caption descriptions accompanying them that blind students can then listen to through screen reader software or whatever, then I can't have those images in there at all. So it's sort of like, you know, if one student out of a thousand cannot get full advantage of this material, then nobody can. And so it incentivized me in many cases to reduce the amount of audiovisual material to put in my online classes because sometimes it was not either not convenient, you know, it was much too burdensome of a, of a time suck for me to do or, or just wasn't possible to have a fully disability, you know, accommodated as is. And by the way, something that was a little bit off-putting to me, too, was that when they started to really like roll out more and clamp down more on this whole idea that every online class has to be completely um, handicap-adaptable, disability-adaptable all the time, they called the sort of program to make sure everybody's meeting all these requirements, they called the program Ally. And when I saw that, I was just, you know, facepalm cringe inside. Like, oh no. Yep, they've brought in the wokeism to the excessive disability accommodationism. I mean, I wasn't really surprised, but still, it was cringe to see it actually happening. So, I'll try and speed up as I continue through, so that I can get through all the points I wanted to make by the time I get home. The next one is... 
private sector profiteering off of academia. So academia is no different than law enforcement, corrections, the military, you know, any other industry that is either wholly or partially state-controlled and or cartelized, in that even when you're talking about a nominally, quote-unquote, public institution, right, like a state college or state university, just as when you're talking about, you know, the military or a law enforcement agency or a prison system, there are still infinite opportunities for private corporate interests to profit at artificially high rates, artificially high profit margins from the fact that you're dealing with a non-competitive free market industry, that you're dealing with a heavily controlled, cartelized, even partially socialized industry. So, you know, the fact that military industrial complex corporations are able to make usually much bigger profits on the dealings that they have with the military versus whatever private sector operations they might also be involved in, right? They're able to do this because in the military context, there's significantly less competition. There might still be some, but there's significantly less, and there are more opportunities to use political entrepreneurship and corruption, both legal and illegal, and usually more legal than illegal in terms of amount, to sort of get a captive audience, to get non-competitive, quasi-monopolistic deals, and so forth, right? So aside from the financial institutions that in various ways help to facilitate things like student loans, you've just got endless amounts of opportunities for corporatist profiteering on the backs of public and quasi-public academic institutions. So just to give you a few examples of this, textbook companies. I despise textbook companies. I I think they are really, really uh, taking advantage over the fact that they have a captive audience because a, a school, you know, selects a certain textbook for a certain class, then students who take that class have no choice but to purchase and use that textbook. And this is why textbooks typically cost such a ridiculous amount of money. It's the same sort of dynamic as, you know, why does it cost way more money to buy a candy bar inside of an airport than it does at a gas station just outside of the airport, right? Why does it cost way more money to buy a big cup of soda at the movie theater than it does at 7-Eleven? It's because you're insulated from competition. So, you know, you can go to a bookstore or go to Amazon.com and buy a serious scholarly history book, but that's not a textbook, for not too much money most of the time. But then you go to buy a textbook for like an intro-level college class, and it costs $100, $200. And it's no, you know, better of a book than the regular book. And if anything, it's probably worse. It's probably... You know, not a nice hardcover book. The paper isn't as nice. And of course, it's a dumbed down book written by committee that nobody would ever buy voluntarily if they weren't forced to purchase it for some class in order to knock out some gen ed credit for a class they didn't even really want to take. So it's yet again a manifestation of the involuntariness of academia as it currently exists 
and the way in which this enables artificial profiteering. But other things, too, that people who've never worked in academia and seen it on the inside you know, may not have thought of. Like, for example, even things like the companies that make the caps and gowns for graduation, right? Like, what percentage of all caps and gowns that people rent and or buy for graduations for high school and college, what percentage of them come from one company, Herf Jones? Off the top of my head, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure just about every graduation I've ever been a part of, either as a student or a teacher, everyone who wants to, you know, participate in the graduation ceremony has to wear a cap and gown that most of them, especially if they're students just renting them, it's coming from Herf Jones. So, you know, they're charging, they're able to charge way more for renting that stupid getup than they would if there weren't these, like, captive audience cronious sort of deals where, you know, an entire school system says, yes, we are going to get all of our caps and gowns and mandate all of our students must rent all of their caps and gowns from Herf Jones or whoever it might be. And it's other things, too. It's the companies that make the online platforms for online classes, the companies that make things like Blackboard or crap. Now I'm blanking on the name of, we used Blackboard early on in my teaching career, but then we switched to one, and I'm having a senior moment brain fart, we switched to another one that I think is more prevalent now, and I'm completely blanking on what it was called. But anyway, also companies that make things like uh, Turnitin, and, you know, respond as lockdown, um, anti-cheating systems for online classes. Again, as with the textbook companies, you're in this sort of like captive audience not that competitive, croniest sort of an industry where you're able to make artificial profits because there's much less competition. Same thing, a lot of the standardized tests are made by private for-profit companies. And then they're able to, you know, charge schools huge amounts of money to use their standardized tests. So just as with the military and war is a racket, there's all these opportunities for perfectly legal, but still, you know, corrupt, cronyist, profiteering sort of practices that give companies that engage in them artificial profits, and then, you know, to squeeze these profits on the backs of exploited students who are being, you know, charged ridiculous amounts of money for their degree. The next thing I want to mention that I think is a problem with academia is administrative bloat or excessive administration. Now, I don't have statistics at my fingertips because I'm driving around. By the way, I am on the way home from Palatka now. I finished sort of driving around a little bit of it, and now I'm on the kind of pleasant country road part of the drive. But anyway, the ratio of administrators to actual teaching faculty or for that matter, to students, has gotten ridiculously uh, more distorted in favor of the number of administrators. In other words, there are way more administrators at colleges today in proportion both to teaching faculty and to students than there ever were, and it's just been you know growing exponentially uh, for decades. And this is a common problem across many of our institutions. It's also the case in the military. 
that, you know, there are way more middle and upper, upper level officers in today's U.S. military in proportion to enlisted men now than there were, say, back in World War II. So there's way more middle management and top heaviness. And this then imposes all kinds of additional costs on the system. Because, of course, each administrator typically makes at least one and a half to two times as much as senior faculty, and oftentimes much more than that. And so the more administrators you have, the more that's just exponentially ballooning the cost of the institution. And very often, a lot of what the administrators are doing is just simply like complying with bureaucratic red tape and coming up with new, you know, bureaucratic initiatives and things to impose on their faculty. And the administrative offices are just engaged in constant uh, mission creep. And, you know, every year they're coming up with additional meetings that you have to go to so that they can talk about the stuff they're doing and all the new stuff they came up with that you're now going to have to do. And so it imposes financial costs on the institution, which means it costs more for the students to go there. And it means that there's less, you know, funding available to potentially give faculty raises, actual teaching faculty. And in addition to that, it's imposing time costs on the teaching faculty because the teaching faculty now have to go to more meetings every year and waste time doing that rather than, you know, preparing to teach and grading and all that. And then, you know, whatever additional bureaucratic red tape you now have to comply with, now that's a a suck on your time as well. And again, that's, you know, a tendency that tends to happen. As big, complex, this is sort of like a a complexity theory problem, too, like I talk about in The Decline and Fall of Civilizations and Empires, that institutions like this, they just grow and grow and grow and add additional layers of complexity, and maybe in the early days of their existence, adding these additional layers of complexity were a net benefit to the institution overall in terms of its ability to function and carry out its mission effectively and efficiently. But eventually, you reach a point of diminishing and then negative returns where each additional layer of complexity makes the thing less capable and less efficient at doing what it's supposed to be doing, rather than more. And this, especially, I think, the the less competitive an industry is, and the more it's, you know, cartelized and cronyist and all that, the more this tendency is going to be magnified for administrative bloat for kind of management bloat. So that was another one, as with gaming the system over disabilities, that I just watched metastasize continuously for 16 years. Like every year or two, they're adding another, you know, dean of this, assistant dean of that, vice president of this, is particularly noticeable at my college at the VP level, where they just keep adding VPs every year. And meanwhile, half the time they're saying, well, we don't have any funding to give the faculty, the actual teaching faculty, a raise this year. Sorry, the funds just aren't there. By the way, meet our new vice president of blah blah you know. And I'm just looking at this person going, you're probably making at least twice what I do to just, you know, oversee a bunch of artificial bureaucratic apparatus. This is adding nothing to the quality of the teaching and learning of the actual institution. So anyway. The next one I want to mention is 
focusing on arbitrary metrics to try to gauge quote-unquote success, and these arbitrary metrics can always be juked and gamed. So in my mind, this is another kind of ripple effect of the fact that you don't have a proper market feedback mechanism of profit and loss to tell you if the, the company, or in this case the institution, is doing a good job of serving its customers. So you know, Toyota is able to know if they're doing a good job as a car company by looking at their sales and looking at their profits. And so it doesn't matter whose definition of a good car and a good car company you're using. If the company is being successful in terms of sales and profits, then they know, okay, what we're doing is making our customers happy. Therefore, at least for those people, we are meeting the function of a good car company, right? But since you don't have something equivalent to that in academia, then in order to know if things are quote-unquote working or going in the right direction, you just have to pick arbitrary metrics. And it's very similar to central planning as a whole, because that's basically what it is. So in a centrally planned economy, where you don't have a proper profit and loss market mechanism to allocate resources... Resources are allocated based on the decisions and whims of government bureaucrats and people like that and politicians. And so in a communist country, the government might decide one year, all right, comrade, our big goal this year is just to produce more tons of steel than we did last year. And so everybody, you know, in industries connected to that, that's their number one goal is just to produce more tons of steel. Okay, well, then what are they going to do? They're going to cater to that because that's what their promotions and bonuses are going to be based on. And so, for example, they might make lower quality steel because maybe they can make more of it that way with the inputs that they have. And so at the end of the fiscal year or the five-year plan, they go, oh, look at this, comrade. Why, we set the goal of increasing overall steel output by 50%, and by golly, we did it by 75%. Aren't we awesome? Communism is the future. And yet, maybe all that steel you made was shit and can't be used for hardly anything because it's so crappy. And also, maybe in the process of devoting so much of your resources to that, I don't know, maybe it means that there's no shoes for people to wear or no toilet paper or whatever, right? So, you know, whatever the metric is that you pick or combination of metrics that you pick to try and define success and to use as goals in academia, it's always going to create warped incentives, and it's always going to create unintended consequences, and it's always going to um, result in people juking the stats and gaming the system. So if you say, okay, our goal as an institution, and your goal as an individual professor on which your raises are going to depend, is student success. As defined by what? Well, what if it's uh, how many students pass? What percentage of students pass? Okay. If you tell me my pay raise depends upon what percentage of my students pass, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure more students pass. What's the easiest way to do that? Lower my grading standards. Give students better grades than really they probably ought to deserve. If you tell me uh, I'm a successful faculty member and will be rewarded if my students get better grades, okay, same deal. I'm going to give out better grades. 
if you tell me I'm going to be rewarded and promoted based on student uh, evaluations, guess what? I'm going to do everything I can to make my students happy and make my students like me, even if that means giving them grades they didn't deserve and focusing on having fun and making them like me over making sure that we actually, you know, really cover the material and that they actually are learning high-level stuff and I'm challenging them. If you tell me it's going to be based on student performance on a particular test, fine. I'm going to figure out a way to cater to that and teach to the test and do whatever else I need to do, you know, to make sure that that metric is met, you see? And so this was one that I ran into in the latter years of me teaching in academia where the administration set a goal and they didn't say it was a five-year plan, but like they damn near did. They almost used the exact words of central planning. You know, they were like, all right, we will know that our goal has been met. If at the end of this big five-year period, we have increased student persistence. Well, what is student persistence? Um, I think it was defined as, because a lot of students, you know, drop out or flunk out within a semester or two of enrolling in college. And so the idea was tracking students And I can't remember if it was over the course of two semesters or two years or whatever, but basically tracking like of how many students who come into the institution in a given year, how many of them are still, you know, making progress towards their degree and enrolled and not dropped out or flunked out after a semester or two or whatever. Student persistence. And then the idea is that the college, you know, is going to be rewarded if that metric increases over time. Oh, and by the way, they chose, um, if I remember right, this was a few years ago, but I, I believe they chose the stats of Flagler College, which is a private college with a competitive entrance policy, you know, where students are, are competing to get into the school based on test grades or uh, test scores and grades and things like that, right? Whereas we were a community college in which basically anybody who can one way or the other afford the tuition and has at least a GED or high school diploma, we can't say no to them. So how on earth can we be expected to ever match a private, fairly competitive college with one that takes anybody with a GED and enough money or, you know, loans to pay for stuff. That always, to me, struck me as ridiculous. You know, it'd be like, let's say you had uh, two youth sports teams, and one of them just takes anybody who shows up, and the other one, it's, you know, competitive tryouts to get in and all that, and expecting, no matter how hard the coach tries, the coach of the team that takes anybody who shows up is never going to be able to get the same results as the coach of the team where it's, you know, very competitive to even get on the team in the first place. That's just reality. So aside from that, you know, again, the idea that you're going to be able to just magically, in a hugely statistically significant way, increase student success or student persistence without significantly lowering standards, that always just struck me as a fool's errand, where you're either going to end up failing to meet your goal if you keep standards the same, or if you do meet the goal, you probably have lowered your standards in some fashion. 
Uh, now, I'm not saying that you might not be able to, you know, increase things a bit without lowering standards by just, you know, maybe incorporating some new uh, teaching methods and tutoring methods and, you know, like that. But to think that, like, you can drastically change your student success rate without changing your standards always just struck me as very unlikely. But maybe I'm a pessimist and a cynic when it comes to stuff like that. But anyway, ultimately, I'm an Austrian on most economic matters, and I very much believe in the subjective theory of value. And so there is no objective answer to what a good education actually is or a good college actually is. That is completely in the eyes of the consumer, but you don't really have a normal consumer or customer relationship in academia for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of which I've talked about here and others of which I have not. So if you contrast it to a much more free educational environment, how about my podcast and other, you know, educational podcasts? Like, how do I know if my podcast is a good history podcast? Well, basically, it's in the eye of my customers. And it doesn't matter if not everybody thinks my podcast is a great history podcast that's highly educational. But can I attract enough people who think that and who are willing to, in various ways, you know, help support me and do business with me? Then it's a success. I don't have to test you and grade you and use metrics like that. Basically, if you enjoy listening to it and you feel like you get value out of it and you're willing to devote your time and even your money to what I'm offering then that's good enough. And so I've got no warped incentive to like game the system and juke the stats. My only incentive is to make enough people happy enough with what I'm doing that I can make a living. In addition to that, though, the focus on arbitrary metrics also in a way extends to the credentialism because in academia, this is changing in some places, but for the most part in academia, your pay, if your faculty is based on two things and two things only. Number one, your highest degree that you have in your field, and number two, your seniority, your years of working in that field. So, you know, where I worked, if someone had the same degree of, had the same amount of years of experience as me, but also had a PhD, they would make more money than me, whether they were a better teacher or not. And again, that's in the current system hard to even define. Same thing with seniority. If somebody had the same credentials as me, meaning they had a master's degree in their field, but they had maybe an additional five years of teaching experience over me, they're going to make more money than me, even if I'm a better teacher than they are. So that's a problem. And an attempt to address that problem is so-called merit pay, where they take other things into account. But once you have merit pay, where some or all of a person's pay scale is directed by them you know, doing well in certain metrics, you run into the same problem of you're arbitrarily picking certain metrics and then people are just going to... So in other words, if you say, oh, we're not going to make your pay just based on credentials and years of experience, we're also going to factor in your student passing rate, your grade point averages, test scores of your students, you know, whatever potpourri of factors you're going to put in there, 
faculty are just going to figure out ways to play to those. You know, if you tell me that I get more pay if students write better reviews of me on their evaluations, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I get good evaluations. Again, even if that means watering down the course content and, you know, the evaluation standards, the the tests and things. So in this weird non-market scenario, there's really no good way, in my opinion, to structure faculty pay scales or administrators for that matter, perhaps even more so. But like the degree plus seniority and that's it, that's a problem because what if someone's got 10 years experience, but they're the greatest teacher ever. Someone else has 30 years experience as a teacher, but they suck. Like most people, if they're being honest, will say that's unfair. But again, as soon as you start picking some arbitrary things for your merit pay, quote unquote, then people are just going to play to that and game the system. Next thing, I think this is number nine, is degree inflation. The fact that more and more people constantly are going to college and getting degrees, it's like printing more money. It just degrades the value. So if only 10% of your population have bachelor's degrees, that bachelor's degree has a lot more value than if 60% of your population have bachelor's degrees. So this degree inflation ends up being exploitative to the students because it means they go in and get a degree and because there's so many other people getting the same degrees, once they get out of college and have that degree, it no longer has the cachet, the value that it might have a decade or a generation or more before. And so even if the student did do some thinking and research before they went to college, on, you know, is this going to be worth the time and money to get this degree, it'll be worth even less by the time they actually complete it, however many years later. And so there's a lot of jobs that you used to be able to get with just a high school diploma that now you need a bachelor's degree minimum to even apply and vice versa. And, and, you know, beyond that, right? So there used to be opportunities to get full-time teaching jobs at even fairly nice colleges and universities without a PhD. But thanks to degree inflation, like I was saying near the beginning of this, sort of degree uh, inflation combined with the credentialism of the accreditation bodies, it's gotten to where they won't even look at your resume. They'll just throw it in the garbage. But there's another way in which degree inflation is insidious and exploitative that people who haven't worked in academia might not realize, might be, you know, just kind of blind to. And that is to the faculty themselves. What I mean by that is because for a variety of reasons, there is massive overproduction of college degrees in most fields. And in many of these fields, there aren't many practical jobs that really necessitate that degree and to where that degree really gives you an advantage over others, right? Like, let's say, I don't know, you get a history degree. Well, how many jobs really are there where a history degree specifically makes you fit into that job and gives you an advantage in that field? Not many. You know, there might just be a generic job that says, like, we just want you to have a bachelor's degree in something for this job, and they don't necessarily care what. And, okay, fine, your history degree might help you get that job, but it doesn't give you a leg up over other people with other degrees, right? And so, in reality... In a lot of academic fields, the only place where you get 
any kind of a potential advantage from your specific degree is, ding, 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 going into teaching, going into academia, teaching that job. And so in a lot of these fields where there's not a whole lot of specific job opportunities other than teaching, it sort of operates like a Ponzi scheme where, you know, if you're running graduate school courses in history and giving people master's and PhD degrees in history, you're making money off of them. You know, you're benefiting from the latest crop of suckers coming in, the later investors, you know, into the Ponzi scheme, and they're not going to get the value that the earliest investors in the scheme, the you know, the earlier people to get that degree and walk away with it and then go get a decent job. Like, in other words, you know, 50 years ago, if you got a, a master's degree in history, that was a much bigger thing in terms of helping your career than if you get a master's degree in history today. And so somebody who got, I don't know, a PhD in history 50 years ago and then went on to have a long uh, career working in, you know, running a PhD program at a university for all those years making good money, they're the early investor in a Ponzi scheme who cashed out and actually profited from it, whether they know it or not. And the later generations of students are like the later investors in the Ponzi scheme that are going to be, you know, left holding the bag up the river when the thing eventually collapses. So one of the things this manifests as, or one of the things this leads to, is that there is a giant, largely invisible, unless you've worked in the, in the industry, there's a giant proletariat of highly credentialed academics who are struggling to make a living as adjuncts. And that was me for one year. And then, you know, I had the good fortune of getting myself at least a full-time job with okay pay and pretty decent benefits. But I was part of the adjunct proletariat for one year. And like I said, I was teaching 80% of a full-time load and I was getting nowhere near 80% of a full-time paycheck and I was getting zero benefits. So significantly less than 80% of, you know, the total pay counting benefits that a full-time person would for teaching the exact same number of courses proportionately. So I don't even know how many millions of people there are around the country today who have master's degrees and sometimes even PhD degrees in some academic discipline or another who got that degree primarily because they wanted to teach and then got out and then found, oh, there's like a zillion other people with that same degree competing for every single teaching job that pops up that's full-time. And so in order to make a living, these people become adjuncts and sometimes at multiple colleges and universities. And like I said, sometimes they're teaching almost the same or even the same or even more than a full-time load, but they're making less money than the full-timers. And they really are kind of the equivalent of like if a, I don't know, if a, if you can remember back to my episode on the sugarcane barons and the way that the Florida sugar companies were bringing in foreign laborers from the Caribbean and bringing them in in a very disadvantageous situation in which they could be kind of like ripped off and exploited without really having any recourse. 
and being allowed, you know, special passes to bring in these foreigners to labor at, you know, significantly less than what domestic laborers would charge or what they would be required to charge based on minimum wage laws, that this allowed the Florida sugar companies to really kind of artificially exploit in a real sense, not in the sense of like, you know, when communists and leftists and whatever talk about just people who work low-wage jobs being, you know, exploited and slaves and whatever, like, no, what I'm talking about is something a little bit closer to that reality than just, you know, somebody working at McDonald's who doesn't make much money. But the adjuncts, and again, you know, you can say like, oh, it's their fault for getting that degree and going into that field and they should have, you know, whatever. But the point is, we're all so heavily propagandized when we're coming up and going through college. And, you know, if you come through college and have some good teachers, it's very easy to want to do that as your job and to go, yeah, I want to, you know, be like Professor so-and-so. He was such a great dude and I learned so much from him and I want to do that. And so you then pursue and you get your graduate degree in your field and you're like, great, now I'm going to teach college. And then you find out like, oh, every time one full-time teaching gig pops up, there's like 400 completely qualified people competing for it. <laughs> and so the odds are not ever in your favor. And so as a result, there's this giant pool of overqualified and underemployed academic proletarians who are adjuncts. And this allows a lot of colleges and universities to offload a lot of their um, intro-level classes to adjuncts and save a bunch of money. Meanwhile, the, you know, administrators are still getting pay raises and the college is still putting in like another food court and still, you know, upgrading, um, whatever the basketball courts or whatever. But yet, you know, here's some 30 year old guy with a PhD who's basically, if he worked it out to like per hour of work, how much he's making, he's making below minimum wage and, you know, struggling to pay his bills. So, you know, that's a whole, situation and dynamic that I think a lot of people who've not been in academia, like, I don't think most students who go to college, even in their own mind, like, know what an adjunct is and realize, like, which of their professors are adjuncts versus which are full-time. Like, I don't, I don't think it's even on the radar of most people when they're coming through college. And by the way, I've had plenty of great professors who were adjuncts when I was a student. So it's not necessarily... You know, the, the fact that somebody is an adjunct is not necessarily uh, proof that they're in any way inferior as an actual teacher. There might be some other reason, including just simple, you know, excess surplus of people with those degrees in that field. Okay, so I didn't have enough time on my drive back from Palatka to finish up all the points I wanted to hit shitting on academia. Can't say I'm terribly surprised that me shitting on academia uh, ends up taking a long time. So, this is actually the next day after my little day trip to Palatka to hike in Ravine Gardens. Um, coincidentally, the very next day, I've got a errand I have to run down to Ormond Beach, which, uh, if you don't know your Florida East Coast geography... Uh, it's in between where I live in Palm Coast and the well-known town of Daytona Beach. So it's kind of right in between Palm Coast and Daytona Beach. And so it's uh, maybe a half hour or so south of me. So hopefully I'll be able to finish up all of what I want to say on today's drive. So the next thing that I want to mention as a big 
complaint about academia by me is the role and influence of the accreditation bodies. And I forget if there's another term for them, you know, accreditation agencies, I don't know. Um, But the one that I always was under, and they're regional in the United States, the one that I was always a part of was called SACS. And uh, yeah, they could eat my sack for all I care. But the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, and they are the ones that determine whether or not a college or school gets quote-unquote accredited, meaning that the credits they give to students who pass their classes and the degrees that they grant to students who, you know, fulfill a degree program are recognized as valid by, you know, institutions and whoever else. Now, once again, as with the overall professionalization of academic disciplines and things like that, there's rationales for it that kind of make sense and are reasonable. Like, yeah, you don't want there to be the ability of schools to be just sort of like pay-for-play, fly-by-night diploma mills, you know, where like, I don't know, Dr. Nick, the snake oil salesman, is able to set up a bullshit medical school and is able to just hand out degrees to anyone who writes him a big enough check. And, you know, those degrees are treated as just as valid as somebody who goes to, like, a serious medical school. Okay, but when you look at what the accreditation bodies do and what they use as their basis for accreditation, it's pretty obvious to someone who's familiar with things like public choice theory and regulatory capture and cartelization, that that's probably the biggest thing that these organizations do, is they are gatekeepers who add artificial costs and barriers to entry that make it ludicrously expensive for anybody to start a new institution and get it accredited and recognized unless you've got a huge amount of startup capital and resources. And I remember Thaddeus Russell talked about this years ago when he was first uh, involved in setting up Renegade University. He apparently didn't understand how accreditation works, I guess. Uh, Even though he had been an academic, I guess he never quite realized this. Um, I I don't know, I ran into it within my first few years of teaching full-time at community college because we had to deal with it's every, I forget if it's every three years or every five years, your school gets basically like audited by your accreditation agency, whichever one you're under. And they come in and they check all these different things and whatever. And if there's stuff that they have complaints about, they'll kind of tell you and give you a list, like you need to improve these things. And then if you don't improve those things by the next time that they come and audit you, then you can lose your accreditation. And obviously that's like, almost a death blow to a college because that's literally the only thing that that artificial value to their certificates, to their degrees is what keeps them a going concern, you know, is what keeps some 18 year old kid from wanting to just go to renegade university because it's more interesting and it's stuff he really wants to learn about versus, you know, going to his local community college and learning generic gen ed shit. The main reason 
why a student would rather go to community college, even though it's probably more boring, less what he's interested in, and more expensive than, you know, something like Redigate University, is the accreditation. The fact that he gets that diploma from the local community college, then that will be recognized by potential, you know, hirers, potential job um, venues as checking the box, fulfilling the box for a college degree. But again, with the accreditation agencies, you run into the problem of central planning, the problem of there's not any sort of a real market feedback mechanism to allow suppliers of the service of quote-unquote education and the customers of the service of quote-unquote education to interact with each other in a voluntary way in order for them to come to a mutually agreeable through market transa- through market transactions, a mutually agreeable you know, decision on kind of what subjectively constitutes a good education and whether or not the student thinks this institution is providing it by voting with their dollars. And, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other problems with accreditation in practice as well, but a big one is just simply providing enormous barriers to entry and artificial costs to starting a new education institution. So, yeah, Thaddeus Russell thought, oh, yeah, I'm just going to have, you know, knowledgeable people teaching about interesting subjects, and students can come and, you know, sign up and take my courses, and why I'll get accredited, and that'll mean people will, will be more incentivized to come here, because then if they get some sort of degree or certificate from Renegade University, then, you know, that'll be on equal footing with a more conventional uh, college degree, right? And then he quickly found out, no, there's all of these hurdles and barriers and costs imposed upon you in order to even be in the running to potentially be accredited. And so it's these arbitrary things that don't necessarily have any real bearing on the quality of the education you're providing for your students. Like, they expect you to have certain kinds of physical facilities, you know, certain, uh, like, libraries and other miscellaneous physical facilities, and all, just all kinds of things. I mean, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm driving, so, you know, I, I don't have a list here to read off. But, you know, it's a classic case... And, and then just in general, the fact that even if potentially you could um, have whatever facilities and, and capital and resources they required from you, you still would have to go through the lengthy, costly process of kind of, you know, auditioning or whatever you want to call it um, and getting sort of like preemptively audited by the accreditation agency, having them sort of like come investigate you and your institution and... You know, even if you had all of the physical facilities and that kind of stuff squared away, that still is additional costs and red tape and whatever of just having to comply. So it's the same thing as like, uh, it's the same principle as if you make it much more difficult for people to, I don't know, be certified as hairstylists, barbers, you know, that kind of thing, right? You impose a bunch of artificial requirements that they have to go to, you know, beauty school for at least this many years and have this many credits in cosmetology in order to be allowed to cut people's hair. And the cover story is, oh, this is to make sure that people know what they're doing when they go into these fields. But in reality, the main thing it's doing is artificially um, restricting entry, raising all these artificial barriers and costs to entry in order to cartelize that career, in order to artificially restrict 
the pool of available people going into that field and thereby drive the costs up for those who are already in the field or those who in the future are willing and able to go through all the hurdles and deal with all the red tape. So anyway, in many ways, when it comes to the institutions of higher learning, quote-unquote, themselves, and um, the accreditation bodies are also involved in K-12, through by the way. Now, I personally am not very familiar with the details of how all that works or whatever, but they also are involved with K-12. through But here I'm speaking, you know, from my own personal experience about academia, which generally people think of as higher education colleges and universities and associated institutions. So, anyway, long story short, the accreditation bodies are in many ways the linchpin to creating the cartelized academia that we know. Oh, and by the way, they're also the key to, in many ways, of institutions, for example, raising the degree requirements for people to be faculty there. So, in other words, ultimately, the main reason why, for example... Flagler College wouldn't hire me as a full-time professor, even though I could clearly do the job, because I don't have a PhD, ultimately that goes back to the accreditation body. Because the accreditation body will say to the college, oh, you know, you need all of your full-time faculty to have PhD degrees in the subject they're teaching. Or... If they don't say all, they'll at least say, like, you know, you need this many percent, some ridiculously, like, you know, you need 90% of your full-time faculty to have at least, you know, a PhD in what they're teaching. And let's say they have a few old-timer, grandfathered-in full-time faculty hired decades ago who only have masters. Well, that might punch out their entire quota of full-time people that only have masters uh, in, in whatever they're teaching. And so, basically, the rule is going to be, all right, going forward... We are only even going to look at applications from people who have PhDs in their field. So anyway, long story short, the accreditation agencies impose all these arbitrary requirements that further restrict competition, um, raise all these artificial bars, uh, barriers to entry, and then you know the net result is... This then restricts the availability of higher education as a service and then massively, artificially drives up the cost. Now, there's other things driving up the costs of higher education, particularly over the last, you know, 40, 50 years as well. But that's a big part of it. It's just simply making it, you know, more restricted. It's, it's very similar to the, um, what, what are they called, certificate of need requirements in order for you to open a new hospital. Like, why are there seemingly never enough hospital facilities in well-populated parts of the country to deal with things? In other words, why, when you go to the emergency room, do you almost always have to wait fucking forever? Well, there's multiple reasons for that, but part of it is it's artificially difficult and expensive to open a new hospital. Even if, let's say, you're a wealthy philanthropist and you want to open up a brand new hospital you've got to get, like, the okay to do so. And part of it is, and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is you need to get a certificate of need that says, oh, yeah, a new hospital is actually needed in this place where you want to open it. And um, that part of what has to be signed off on for you to get that certificate of need is that the other 
already existing hospitals in your region have to agree. I mean, imagine if that was applied to other fields, right? Imagine if, you know, in order to open up a new restaurant in a particular area, you had to get the existing restaurants in your area to agree that your area needed an additional restaurant, right? Wouldn't we all look at that and go, oh, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. That's, you know, obviously it's the existing uh, firms trying to block out as much of their competition as they can and artificially restrict the supply of restaurants in order to artificially, you know, push their own um, prices up, their own costs up that they can charge and get away with for restaurant, you know, services. But for some reason, when it comes to quote-unquote non-profit institutions, like higher education institutions and hospitals, we suddenly, you know, pretend economics doesn't work. But the fact of the matter is, even though a college or university or hospital might be as an entire institution, quote-unquote, non-profit, that doesn't mean that the individual people who work for that institution are not, as individuals, still profit-seeking entities and will still respond to incentives and will still, if they have the opportunity, try to reduce their competition in order to, you know, pull their income up. Just because a, I don't know, a university might be technically a nonprofit institution doesn't mean that the president of the university isn't for profit as an individual person. And then, of course, on top of that, there are all of the private profiteering companies that also benefit themselves from this cartelized arrangement in which, you know, the availability of quote-unquote higher education is artificially restricted. In other words, if you're a textbook company, for example, you also benefit from just the overall availability of universities being artificially restricted. Because it means you can cater to a relatively restricted market and a captive audience and charge artificially higher prices for your textbooks And it's kind of a classic monopolist idea of you're restricting supply and then pulling your prices, what you're charging, up. My next big gripe against academia, and this is one probably everybody listening expected me to mention, and maybe you were surprised I didn't lead off first, but again, uh, in this list, I'm not doing these in any particular order. Um, is that ideology is baked into most or even perhaps all academic disciplines. And it's true that the ideology has varied somewhat over time, but in at least most academic disciplines, I'll say, the ideology since uh, at least the turn of the last century, if not a decade or two before, has been, in American institutions of higher learning, progressivism. And while it's true that what progressivism actually is and the details of its contents have changed over time, in other words, what a progressive of the Woodrow Wilson era believed is not identical to what a modern-day self-described progressive would believe. Nonetheless, it's just, you know, later versions and evolutions of the same thing. Even though a modern-day progressive might not agree with every specific detail, 
of the ideology of a Woodrow Wilson or a Teddy Roosevelt, nonetheless, any intellectually honest person would have to say, well, clearly, though, despite their differences, the modern-day progressive is the intellectual descendant of the, you know, 120 years ago progressive. And those of you who've listened to me talk about this before know that I think of progressivism in terms of versions. And so, and I'm still kind of grappling with how to organize the really recent shifts, but, you know, I would call the Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson era progressivism version 1.0. And then I would call the Franklin Roosevelt New Deal era version progressivism 2.0. And then basically the Lyndon Johnson version progressivism version 3.0. And then, you know, I, it gets... As with so many things, when you're trying to break it into like phases in history, the closer you get to the present, the harder it is because you don't have as much benefit of hindsight to really see uh, the patterns and shifts as clearly as things further back. But, you know, I would argue we're probably, when it comes to like the wokest version of progressivism, we're probably in progressivism version 5.0 right now. And that there was maybe like a, a 4.0 version kind of in between the Great Society era version and the Wokista version. But I've mentioned this before, but if you go back and look at the professionalization era of academia in like the 1880s, 1890s, first decade or two of the 1900s, which is when it pretty much all went down, that's when you get the foundation of the professional academic associations, right? The American Historical Association, the American Economics Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Political Science Association, etc., etc. Um, that as far as I know, every single one of them are all still around today, and they are all still the biggest and most influential professional associations in their respective fields. And all of them, when you look into specifically um, which, you know, professors were behind founding these things and what were their intentions and in setting them up, at least everyone that I've ever looked at, it's progressivism. The founders are ideological progressives in, you know, whatever, whatever field, whether it's economics, history, whatever. And then, you know, a big part of them setting themselves up as the gatekeepers of, you know, what is acceptable uh, professional standards, academic history, or academic economics, they bake in a whole lot of progressive ideological assumptions, sometimes overtly, sometimes more subtly. But then these associations are a big part of kind of defining the window of allowable opinion and debate within that field. And so having ideology baked in very often as like tacit presuppositions into a given discipline is very powerful. And I would argue that it's the combination of this, the fact that ideology is baked into many of these disciplines, plus the fact of self-selection. In other words, once it's kind of obvious and people understand like, oh yeah, 90% of academics are progressives, then there's this self-selection thing where a lot of intelligent people who could be successful academic intellectuals who are not progressives, who are whatever, libertarians, 
conservatives, whatever. A lot of them who potentially might go into an academic intellectual career if there was genuine intellectual diversity, you know, if they were thriving, like if history in academia was this like thriving hotbed of intellectual diversity, where there's lots of people of all sorts of different ideological points of view, right? Um, But if instead you find out that, oh yeah, it's pretty obvious that 95% of professional academic historians are progressives, and I'm not a progressive, well, a hell of a lot of people are just going to go, you know what, I'm not going into that career. Even if I have an interest in it, and I have, you know, I believe some talent for doing that job, for researching and writing about and teaching about history, but I know that I'm always going to be ideologically, at best, a, a weirdo minority within my profession, and that there's a good possibility that I might, you know, be discriminated against. And there's all these laws and things against discriminating against someone for their religion or their race or their nationality or their gender or their sexual preference or whatever. Um, But my understanding is that at least in most parts of the country, it's still quite legal to discriminate against somebody based on like their political affiliation and that kind of stuff. And even if it is illegal in some places, there's always ways to game it and get around it. I mean, I'm not in favor of laws as the solution of actually having laws saying, you know, oh, you can't discriminate on someone based on their political affiliation. Um, I I think laws are always a bad uh, solution to a problem. Or in other words, banning things is always a bad solution to a problem of this sort. But you know, it's enough to deter potentially a lot of people who might go into an academic field just to know that they're always going to be at best a weirdo misfit toy within their own career group. And that at worst, they might face genuine career hurdles. You know, that they might be less likely to get jobs and to get promotions and to get published and all these things if they don't toe the line ideologically. So anyway, yeah, having the ideology baked into the cake from the get-go, plus the self-selection. And then one more factor, which is just in general, large institutions tend to be small-c conservative. In other words, they tend to be default resistant to change. Now, I don't mean they're ideologically conservative. I mean, if an institution is founded from its inception to be ideologically progressive well, then it is going to be conservative in the sense that it is going to resist any change to its progressive ideology. So, you know, if you're a group of professors and administrators at the vast majority of colleges and universities that exist, and you're part of a job hiring committee, you're part of a a committee to fill a vacant, you know, full-time faculty position, and... 90 to 99% of the people on the hiring committee are so blue-pilled, ideologically progressive that they don't even realize that that's what they are. They're not even going to have to consciously think about or debate not wanting to hire this weirdo who's applying for the job, who maybe does have all the qualifications, but who seems to be some kind of right-winger or some kind of crazy libertarian. They're going to just naturally be unfavorably disposed to that guy 
if he shows his stripes at all in, you know, the interview process or something like that. And so as a result, academia always tends towards very rigid, monolithic, ideological conformity with a very, very small number of outliers. And you think about what this does, particularly considering how many fields of knowledge the ideology of the teacher, writer, researcher matters to the output of their product, whether it's a class they teach, a book they write, an article they write, a lecture they give, right? I mean, as I've covered in Honest History and as I've mentioned in many places, it's ridiculous to think that the ideology of an historian is not going to affect the work that they produce and the work that they do from start to finish. Like even before they start writing the paper or crafting the course, just in terms of uh, when they make the decision of what subjects are worth looking into and what sources are worth consulting and what points of view are worth giving serious consideration to. Ideology molds all of that. And so if 95% of academic historians are all of the same ideology, that's going to make the knowledge of what we know as history artificially monolithic, when in reality there are near infinite ways from which to look at a given set of facts. Even if we agree on what the facts are, and that itself is often ideologically affected. But then how we put those facts together into a narrative and what those facts ultimately mean is inevitably ideologically shaped. And so this is why academia are these circle-jerk echo chambers. Oh, by the way, before I move on to my next point, something that I forgot to mention in regards to more bad things in academia, in my opinion, that are caused uh, in large part by the accreditation agencies and how they operate. The accreditation agencies, or bodies, or whatever their official term is, they are obsessed with quantifiable data. That's the main thing that they seem to value. And so when they audit a college, they want the college to be able to provide them with huge amounts of numerical data. And then they uh, sort of presume that a, the fact that the college is collecting enormous amounts of data means that they're doing something and trying to improve themselves in terms of educating students, and that then it also allows the accreditation agency to see if the college is, in fact, according to the data they've been collecting, uh, improving. And this is a big part of so-called outcomes-based education. And I wish I had one of my old syllabi in front of me, because one of the many things, um, our syllabi got longer seemingly every year, because every year there'd be a new statement that you had to cut and paste onto your syllabus. And so as a result, my syllabus is like, you know, six, seven pages long, and 80% of it is just generic statements about things cut and pasted on there. And, you know, 20% at best is like specific things I actually wrote myself that are specific to, you know, what we're going to do in the course and everything like that. 
And so one of the things that was required to be just cut and pasted onto your syllabus was student learning outcomes. And then it would say something like, students upon completion of this course will be able to. And then it would list things. And I forget how many we had. Maybe we had six or seven for history classes. And it was these, you know, generic kind of things that are sort of vague and whatever and don't really mean anything in my opinion. Like, students will be able to observe, interpret, and analyze historical constructs accurately. That kind of thing. And I can't remember, because it's the next day, I can't remember if I already mentioned this stuff in the segments I recorded yesterday when I drove to Palatka or not. But those student learning outcomes were basically there to show to SACS, to show to the accreditation agency, hey, look, we've got these learning outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And then in order to provide them with quote-unquote evidence that you're doing that, there would be at least one course in each discipline that would embed test questions in order to allegedly test to what degree students are fulfilling that outcome or not. And so in history, our course that we did this in was part two of U.S. history. It was AMH 2020, which was U.S. history since 1877, basically U.S. history post-Reconstruction. And so for each of those things, students should be able to synthesize and evaluate historical arguments, you know, just various things. Recall and analyze facts. And so for each one of those outcomes, we would have several multiple choice questions that would supposedly, you know, each, like you'd have four or five questions that all are addressing outcome one. You'd have four or five questions that are all addressing outcome two, etc. Now, to what degree were these particular questions actually addressing the vague jargon in the learning outcomes? Well, who the fuck knows? And then what you were supposed to do is embed, and there were some others that used essay questions and other things, but we used multiple choice um, primarily out of laziness. And we would embed these test questions on an exam or exams, and then we were supposed to tabulate what percentage of students got each question correct and then kind of average that out for that learning outcome as a whole. And in particular, we were to look at what percentage of students who passed the course got each question correct of these, you know, special embedded learning outcome questions. So in other words, these would be on an exam. They would not be the only questions. They'd be, you know, some fraction of the questions on the overall exam. And then we were supposed to not only spend time at the end of the semester, and this was a, a huge burden at the end of each semester. Like, I would do my grades. I would grade all the, you know, remaining, you know, if I had any papers left that I was still working on, because those always took me forever to grade, I would grade those. And, of course, I'd grade, grade everybody's final exams and, you know, plug everything in and calculate their, their overall uh, course grade, letter grade. But then on top of that, I would have to do all this crap of going back and you know, trying to tabulate what percentage of passing students got each of the special student learning outcome questions correct. 
And then I had to enter that data into a special, you know, system in the college's intraweb or whatever you want to call it. And then after doing all that, I had to like write up uh, a paragraph for each learning outcome, trying to analyze, you know, interpret the tea leaves. What does this mean? You know, oh, look, last semester, 73% of students uh, answered the questions for learning outcome one correctly. This semester, 76% did. Oh, and I'm supposed to reflect on like, oh, look, uh, it's because uh, my, I improved my teaching by doing this and that. And I'll just be honest with you, everybody that I ever talked to about that, number one, they thought doing all this stuff was a horrible process that wasted their time. They thought that this was not useful at all to actually, like, you know, improving their teaching and whatever. And everybody that I knew anyway thought that in particular having to write up these little paragraphs where you're supposed to, like, reflect back and be like, you know, what worked, what didn't, what are you going to change for next semester, that they were just completely BSing that part. That They were just like, I don't know, let me think of some vague, jargony-sounding thing to put in there. You know, and I always had a hard time because I was always like, man, what vague, jargony bullshit did I say last semester? Let me try and make it this time a little bit different because heaven forbid somebody actually goes back and like reads back to back, you know, from one semester to the next and realizes that I'm like writing the same fucking thing every time, you know? So there's this fixation on quantifiable data that happens throughout education. But again, I'm speaking mostly from my experience in college. And I, I think it has all kinds of detrimental effects, this, this idea. And again, it goes back to you don't have a market feedback mechanism. You're essentially relying on central planning. And so one of the things that happens is that everything is all about quantifiable data. And in my opinion, there are things that quantifiable numerical data can tell you. And there are things that it can't. And the problem is when you try and misapply quantifiable data to a question or a problem or whatever where it, it's not appropriate. And I think of like how Robert McNamara was trying to run the Vietnam War, where he's trying to run it like a math problem. Like, all right, all we need to do is look at our kill to loss ratio and a few other, you know, mathematical formulas, and we'll know if we're winning this war. And it's like, according to all the, the math he was doing, by God, we're winning the Vietnam War. But of course... The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, somehow they didn't get the fucking memo that McNamara's math equations were saying that they were losing. Somehow they just decided to keep fighting anyway, and uh, in the long run they won. At, at great cost, but they won. And to me, when people misapply, it's sort of like a version of scientism, you know, misapplying the scientific method and the the kind of notions and idioms of science to a place where it doesn't really fit and it's not appropriate. To me, when you're trying to use quantifiable data and methods of analysis for something where it really isn't appropriate, it's sort of like the old joke about the drunk guy looking for his keys under a street light, and someone asks him, like, hey, did you drop your keys over there under the light? And he goes, no, but... um under the light is where I can see best. So that's why I'm looking for them here. I'm, I'm butchering the joke, of course. But um, anyway, you get, you get my meaning, right? That they're looking at numbers 
and pretending that it's telling them all this information when in reality it's really just your administrators want numbers because SACS wants, wants numbers. And so as a result, the educational process is getting all kinds of, you know, mucked up because of this obsession with data, which is driven by this kind of central planning paradigm. Whereas whether or not I'm doing a good job of teaching a student history doesn't really have much, if anything, to do with whether they got this particular question right or this particular question right on some exam. Because you would have to have, I mean, there are so many factors you would have to have that just having some numerical data about who got this question right and that question right doesn't tell you. There could be a student who learned a shit ton in my class and what they learned actually blew their freaking mind and yet for whatever reason, you know, they get some of those embedded test questions wrong, right? And, you know, doesn't tell me anything. So anyway, getting to my second to last point, this is point number 12, I believe, is the adversarial relationship created in most academic contexts between teacher and student. And so this is something I talked about back when I spoke at Harvard. Yes, I did speak at Harvard. It was to a small room with not very many people in it, but by God, I did deliver a speech at Harvard back in, um, I think it was 2018, at the Sound Education Educational Podcasting Conference. And I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the show notes if you've never listened to it. But that presentation was called The Voluntary Difference. And it was all about how the involuntary nature of most conventional academic settings, whether it's K-12 through or higher education, ruins everything. And how voluntary educational situations are superior in virtually every way you can think of. And so you think about it, a student who's in my class, in one of my history classes when I was teaching college, in almost every case, they're not especially interested in history or what I have to say or anything like that. In the overwhelming majority of cases, they are in my class because they were told, oh, this is a gen ed class you have to take to get whatever degree you want to get. And, you know, they maybe, maybe they picked my class over someone else's because they heard I had a better reputation than some other teacher. Or maybe, you know, when my class was offered just happened to be the most convenient time for them or whatever. You know, they didn't really, like, go, man, I really want to learn history. And I really want to learn it from this Kilmer guy. No. And, you know, you could argue that for some percentage of them, even being in college isn't fully voluntary because they were probably relentlessly propagandized into it. They probably were pressured by teachers and parents and other authority figures, guidance counselors, whatever, um, to where someone who maybe college isn't the best thing for them still ends up being kind of like steamrolled, you know, as a teenager into going. And so, yeah, you know, someone in a community college history class is there a little bit relatively more voluntarily than someone who's sitting in a public school class, but it's still nowhere near genuinely voluntary. And so one of the things, one of the many things that this reality poisons is the student-teacher relationship. Because ideally, when you think about it, shouldn't the interests of a teacher and a student largely coincide? If it's, if it's a voluntary situation, it does, right? Like, if I'm choosing to 
go participate in a martial arts class or choosing to go participate in a gardening class or choosing to go participate in a piano class, right? And assuming, you know, my parents aren't forcing me into any of these things, I'm choosing it of my own volition. Well, then, the person teaching me wants me to be satisfied with what I'm, what I'm learning from them, to feel like I'm getting value and learning from them so that I, you know, continue to be a customer. And me as a student, I want to get as much value from what they have to teach me as I possibly can. But in the involuntary relationship characterized by most conventional schooling environments, in reality, most of the students, unless they just coincidentally happen to be intrinsically motivated to learn about my subject, or I just happen to, you know, hook them in by trying to make it interesting, and they get intrinsically motivated, but that's, you know, you're never going to get everybody with that, no matter how good of a teacher you are in reality. But, you know, for most students, the relationship is still ultimately adversarial. And it also has to do with the fact that I'm then assigning them grades. I'm grading them on material in a course they didn't really want to take and don't particularly have any interest in. So their incentive rationally becomes, in any class that they're not intrinsically motivated uh, to be interested in, their purely rational incentive is, what is the least amount of effort I can expend in order to get what I want? And for, for some student, it might just be, you know, a minimal passing grade, a C minus that'll get me the genetic credit and get me done with this class. And on to the next thing I don't really want to do. And, you know, for students who are more academically successful and ambitious or whatever, they might want a certain GPA, right, whatever it is. But the point is, still ultimately, like, if you could get a C minus by giving 50% effort, wouldn't you rather do that if that's all you really care about versus giving 100% effort to get the same grade? And so students, most of them, are more concerned with the grade than with actually learning anything. And most of them are, whether they realize it consciously or not, really doesn't matter. They are looking to get whatever is the acceptable outcome to them at the lowest cost and effort. Meanwhile, I'm trying to have some standards. I'm trying to, you know, only give a student an A if I think they really earned an A. And so you end up in this adversarial relationship. And some percentage of them are going to do things like cheating and plagiarism. And now I've got to try and, you know, police that. And if I give them a grade they don't like, they're going to argue with me and bitch and moan and complain. You know, and they, they turn in a mediocre essay, but they desperately want a certain uh, GPA for some reason to get into a program or to keep their athletic eligibility or to keep some scholarship they're on or whatever. And so it, it makes this messy thing, whereas like in voluntary educational situations, that's very unlikely to happen. I mean, it's very unlikely to ever work, and it's going to be extremely rare for anyone to try. If I'm clearly not getting better as a guitar player, I don't want my guitar teacher to tell me, I'm doing great, I'm awesome, you know, I'm improving so much. That doesn't help me. Whereas if I'm being forced in a situation to take a, a guitar class when I didn't really want to, and me completing that class is in the way of me, you know, moving on to something else that's more my goal, then, all right, and let's say I, I genuinely have no interest in learning guitar, well, I'm going to do whatever I can to try and game the system 
And, you know, if there's ways I can cheat, I'm going to try and cheat. And if, let's say, I play something and don't get a passing grade, I'm going to argue with my teacher all day about how I should have got a passing grade for it, blah, 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 blah. Right? So anyway, the, the fact that the situation is involuntary, and in that involuntary situation, the teacher is grading the student, and the grades are, you know, gatekeeping whether or not the student completes the tasks, the task and moves on to the next thing um, of their overall larger goal, all of this poisons the student-teacher relationship from what it ideally should be, where the interests of the student and the teacher largely coincide, right? And just look at a voluntary educational situation. My podcast. I want to teach you to share my knowledge with you in a way that hopefully is entertaining to where you just enjoy it anyway. But also, I want you to feel like you've learned something, that you've learned new things that you didn't know before. And if you're listening, presumably those are the things you want too. You want, you know, entertainment in the sense of enjoying the experience intrinsically, but also if you're listening to an educational podcast, or at least one that strives to be such, you also want to come away from the experience, not just having been entertained and, you know, your mind kept busy while you're driving a semi-truck or a forklift or delivering the mail or, you know, working in a warehouse or whatever it is you're doing or mowing the lawn or working out. But the fact that you're listening to this instead of to music or instead of to a more, you know, just kind of lighthearted fluff podcast and, you know, nothing wrong with any of that. But the fact that you're choosing to listen to something like this indicates that you probably are interested in learning. So our interests coincide. I want to do the best job I can with my edutainment here. And you want to get the best edutainment possible. There's no adversarial relationship. And then the last thing that I want to mention as a big gripe about academia, structurally, systemically, and, you know, I've I've tried to make these as structural and, and systemic as possible in the true sense of those words, rather than, you know, me griping about just something in history or me griping about just something at one particular place I was a student or an employee. Um, The last one is the state and corporate influence. And this one probably doesn't need a huge amount of elaboration. It's probably pretty obvious to most people who have thought about this much. But the fact that so much of the funding, even at nominally private colleges and universities, but especially at quote-unquote public ones, the fact that so much of the funding comes from the state, meaning both like, you know, the, the state government in the U.S., but also the federal government, and big corporations in various ways, including through foundations, you know. The fact that so much of the funding for academia comes from those sources inevitably has a giant influence on the content of academia, on the content of academic journals, on the content of courses being taught, on the content of what books are being published by academic presses and things. The fact that Big Pharma is donating to medical schools, the fact that governments are donating to universities, all of these things. Because that money always comes with strings attached, even when it's implied, even when it's tacit. If the military-industrial complex is funding 
the science and engineering departments at your university, they probably don't need to tell you what kinds of work and research and projects they want you to green light and funnel money into and which they don't. They probably don't even need to tell you. You, you know, if you're, you know, someone in a position of administrative power controlling things like who gets uh, grants, who gets funding, whose research gets supported, and whose doesn't. And so I think it's probably impossible to overstate the degree to which state and corporate money equated into influence corrupts and perverts academia. You know, everything from the basic policies of the institution. Like, if you're an institution that takes any federal money, well, now you've got to comply with whatever federal regulations and rules they want to throw at you. So, you know, if you don't want to have, I don't know. um, and, And obviously, if the state, let's say, is captured by a bunch of wokest zealots, right? If the federal government is captured by a bunch of wokistas, and they want to force every single college and university that gets money from them to have to comply with all these crazy woke uh, rules and regulations, well, they're going to get their way because they control the money, or at least you know a giant piece of it, um, a piece so significant that it's vital to the institution existing. And so everything from like the basic policies of the college, right? Title IX right? There's a good example. All these regulations and things. But then, like I said, right on down to the content of what research gets funded and what doesn't, what experiments get greenlit and which don't. Which new department does or does not your institution add next year? You know, if there is, let's say at a, at a research medical school type institution, if there's one researcher who wants to do some research that might benefit humanity greatly, but doesn't, you know, have a chance of benefiting big pharma, like maybe it's, I don't know, just making stuff up here, but suppose it's a project that could result in, like, way cheaper treatment to some disease that currently big pharma makes a ton of money off of only having expensive treatments for, Um, and someone else wants to do research and experimentation on a completely different area that potentially stands to benefit big pharma a huge amount, you know, guess which program, which experiment, which research is likely to get funded. Likewise, if you're the economics department of some university and you've got, you know, two competing proposals for big expensive research projects and one of them is clearly of a sort that is likely to benefit the government and the Federal Reserve and, say, Wall Street and big financial institutions and the other potential economics research project on the docket is one that seems in some way to likely go against the interests of those institutions. Guess which one is likely to get the green light? Which one isn't? So there you go. I hope all of this wasn't too rambly and off the cuff. Um, I hope you found it interesting and worth listening to. I hope you've learned at least a little bit more. Again, a lot of this is stuff I've mentioned in bits and pieces throughout my podcasting career. But My goal here was to, in my own humble way, sort of be like a Smedley Butler of academia and not just tell you what you already know, which is that academia is corrupted, dysfunctional, and, you know, all these things and that you can't trust it and that it's ripping people off. 
But I hope I've given you some of the specifics of, in my opinion at least, what some of the specific roots are of a lot of these problems so that you better understand it and then can better, you know, if you have to interact with, with academia in some way or another, do so at least as an informed consumer, for lack of a better term. And so, yeah, to wrap this all up as I'm getting back home from my errand down to Ormond, let me just say, war may be a racket, but just as much, college is a racket. Academia is a racket. Schooling is a racket. And while it may not directly drop bombs on people, considering how important of roles academia has played in ginning up and supporting in various ways, America's wars for over a century. At the very least, you would have to say that one of the things academia has done has been an accessory to war. And by the way, I still might in the future do a a whole episode on maybe as part of my World War I propaganda series, maybe as a standalone thing, I don't know, but just about the ways in which American academia mobilized as really blatant propagandists for American participation in World War I, even though most of them clearly knew better. But just because somebody lives in an ivory tower doesn't mean they're immune to all of the flaws and imperfections of humanity, including a proneness to corruption. In fact, I would argue that the prestige and institutional power and protections that one gets from being a high-ranking member of academia are a form of power, clearly. And we all know what power tends to do. Anyway, thank you for listening and thank you for joining me on my drives the past couple of days. Okay, so in case you can't tell by the sudden improvement in audio quality, I am back in the home studio days later after recording those segments that comprise the bulk of this episode. But a couple of things that just I couldn't leave out. One was during the episode I was having a brain fart and not able to think of the platform that we use for online classes for the bulk of the time that I was teaching, and it is Canvas. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. I used it for probably like a decade, and as far as I know, it's the most common college online platform, but anyway, yeah, it's Canvas, if you were wondering. And then I also couldn't resist going and digging out from one of my old syllabi. This is actually from a World Civ syllabi from 2020. Those student learning outcomes. So I'm going to read these to you. And it's for World Civ, but basically it's the exact same thing in U.S. history as well. So, this is what was required to be put on history syllabi. Cut and paste verbatim. Student Learning Outcomes Upon successful completion of this course, the learner will be able to A. Describe, define, and recall critical factual information concerning people, places, and events relevant to world history. B. Explain and interpret information relevant to the issues involved in this course. C. Apply historical constructs accurately. D. Analyze, contrast, and infer ideas critical to understanding the causes of events and the outcomes of those events. 
E. Synthesize acquired material and use it to predict, hypothesize, and or generate new perspective of historical events. F. Evaluate and assess established and or novel historical principles appropriately. End quote for my syllabus. So, yeah, other than, you know, a minor word change here or there from World Civ to U.S. history, that's basically what was on all of the history syllabi. And those six student learning outcomes are supposed to be the definition of what student success in the course means. It means that they can say that they can do those things. And we were supposed to evaluate what percentage of passing students had fulfilled or not fulfilled which of those outcomes based on, I think it was a grand total of 18 embedded multiple choice questions on tests. I believe if I remember right, it was three questions for each of the six outcomes. And then based on that, we were supposed to evaluate whether or not we had done an adequate job of helping students to fulfill those learning outcomes. And then we were supposed to write up an entire paragraph explaining what worked and what didn't, and one explaining what changes we were going to make to next year or next semester or whatever and so forth. And like I said, at least in history and from the impression I got in a lot of other disciplines as well, faculty didn't take these very seriously at all. But it gave some of the administrators something to do and something that they could point to when SACS came around every few years to decide whether or not to re-up our accreditation. So, I guess they serve some function. All right, and just a few important announcements before we call it a day for this episode. And the first is a friendly reminder that I am going to be speaking on the decline and fall of empires at the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, on the weekend of March 25th and 26th. And so this is going to be basically in the Nashville area, but a bit outside of Nashville, in the Middle Tennessee region. And it is going to be a really cool event with lots of people participating and speaking and vending and so forth. Mostly very, very practical stuff to deal with preparedness and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, me there to give the history perspective of what to expect when your empire is declining. And I would love as many DHP listeners as possible who are able to attend, to attend, to hear me speak, hear all the other awesome people speak and present there. And of course, you know, I always enjoy meeting listeners to my show in real life whenever the chance presents itself. So there will be a link in the show notes to the event so that you can get your tickets, and I'd love to see you there. Next thing, just a reminder that I have compiled a detailed bibliography of over 150 books on U.S. history and compiled them into a bibliography organized by subtopic and with notes and comments on the books by me, what I call my Dangerous American History Bibliography. And you can sign up to get it for free by just going to DangerousBib.com. That's the word Dangerous and then B-I-B, all one thing, Dangerous Bib. I know it sounds like something that you would want to keep away from your infant, but it's obviously short for bibliography, DangerousBib.com, and sign up for my email list there, and you will get the Dangerous Bibliography for free. And of course, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. 
And aside from getting the Dangerous Bibliography, you will get regular emails from me um, commenting on current events, talking about, you know, interesting things that have happened to me, talking about historical stuff, talking about things I'm working on, things that are coming up, etc. And then last thing, as always, please, please, please consider perhaps the best way to help me continue doing what I'm doing is to sign up for a regular contribution via Patreon or Subscribestar. Links to those, of course, will be in the show notes. But if you do that, you get all kinds of bonuses, including, depending on your level of contribution, you get access to the first 52 episodes of the show, Vintage DHP. You get access to ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes. You get bonus episodes available nowhere else. You get the option to join the private DHP supporters Facebook group. And if you chip in even more, you get access to monthly exclusive live streams with me and chip in even a little bit more than that. And you can get access to the DHP book club, which convenes over Zoom once a month and alternates in even months. We discuss nonfiction books and in odd months we discuss fiction books. So anyway. Those are just some of the perks you get if you sign up to support me on a monthly or yearly basis through Patreon or Subscribestar. Links in the show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening.